Good evening, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Hope you're doing well. It is Wednesday night. Time to line them up. Shoot them down. The yellow godlike ducks of listener questions and a usual request to you, the listener. Please, please, please go to freedomainradio.com slash donate and help us out. We need you now more than ever. And I think the world needs even more philosophy than it's been getting And uh, it's up to you to help us to make that happen. So please, please help us out at freedomainradio.com slash donate. All right, Mikey Mike, who we got on first? Laura emailed in with uh, some of the latest information from the recent Miss Universe contest, where Miss Columbia was asked the following question, what can women learn from men? Now, you know, the previous questions, the audience, you know, normally clapped politely or somewhat cheered, but this one was met with disapproving oohs and all kinds of grumbles. Um, And then she answered the question with, I still believe there's still men that do believe in equality. I believe that's what women should learn from men. So Laura wrote in to inform us of that, and I was curious, with so many women... What? (laughs) What was the name of that other woman, Prigent, who, who did that long, rambling word salad about Iraq? Oh, oh gosh, I couldn't tell you. It was like name. there's a classic every year from the Miss Universe contest. So there are some men who believe in equality. We can learn from them. According that, to that's basically Columbia. what she had to say. Yeah, that's it in a nutshell, yeah. Well, actually, that's pretty much all she said. All the answers from all the contestants were pretty short and quite frankly stupid. <laughs> So is she is she indicating that there are more men than women who believe in equality and it's the women who could learn from I'm trying to figure out what she's trying to say. I, maybe maybe that's a hole with no bottom that I'm trying to <laughs> lower myself what into. I was thinking too. I'm wondering if there's a little bit of language barrier as well. She did have a translator on stage, so I'm not sure if she even knew what she was saying. <laughs> Uh, it could be a language barrier. Uh, it could be. You know, that there is the stereotype that if you have a significant attribute in one area, the gods are not so generous as to bless us all equally. Yes. <laughs> and w- where they give with one hand, it could be said that with another hand, they, <laughs> oh, take so much away. But, you know, obviously there's Hedy Lamar, who was an actress in the 40s. Uh, considered to be, I think, the world's most beautiful woman, and she helped with cryptography, and she had patents, and she was quite a genius. So it's not always the case. But it doesn't seem to have been gifts spread equally um, with a trowel in this case, right? Right. But I like the question, what can women learn from men? I like that. uh, I like the question. Now, was it what can we or what can women? What What can can women? women? He he specifically starts, and this is what I found hilarious, he starts out by saying, I'm sure you're asked all the time, what can men learn from women? But what I want to know is what can women learn from men? And right there, he's putting Mm. the disclaimer out. You know, it's okay to say it this way, but I'm going to ask it to you this way. And suddenly the audience loses it. You know, I just, it's so ridiculous to me that why would it be okay one way and not the other? What what could we learn from Hitler? (laughs) That, ooh... Yeah, that's uh, right. <laughs> And Mike, weren't you telling me that there was a Super Bowl commercial? 
uh, and um, Sarah, Sarah Silverman was, was offering condolences to another woman yeah, on their baby. Yeah, it was a T-Mobile commercial, so make sure you, you don't buy T-Mobile, everybody. But uh, they were – her and another woman were one-upping each other regarding their, their homes that they lived in. And uh, Sarah Silverman had a birthing center in her basement, and she handed a baby to the family and said, sorry, it's a, sorry, it's a boy. Oh. <laughs> Oh, so sad. So did you have a particular question or are we just here to crap about the pretty people not making the smart sounds? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess in general, I was just calling to more or less discuss that question as well as Miss Universe in general. I was kind of pulling up some things on the internet to try to research this a little bit before I called. And what I found was a uh, interview on the Miss Universe website with Paula Shugart, who's the president of organization for that and Miss Teen USA and Miss USA. And she claims that pageants are, quote, dedicated to empowering women, end quote. And I mm-hmm. just, I need some clarification as to how this empowers women and doesn't bring them down a notch. And I know they try to, dress it up a little bit as if, you know, these women are doing charitable things and that's what we should be focusing on. But it's, call it what it is. It's a beauty pageant. It's listed, you know, it's called that. So just, how is this empowering women? Do you have an opinion on that? <laughs> I mean, as soon as I can figure out what the hell people mean by empowerment, I might, <laughs> you know, I mean, empowerment to me just brings image of Dr. Frankenstein, you know, it lives. <laughs> I brought it power. I, but but I mean, obviously there is a power in youthful female indicators of fertility, to put it as nicely mm-hmm. uh, as possible. And um, you know, uh, men men bring resources to women uh, in order to have the woman agree to breed with them, and that's the that's then. So the men who have the most resources. Uh, tend to mate with the women who have the most fertility indicators, uh, which, you know, changes from culture to culture, even features uh, and uh, a good hip to waist ratio and youth, of course, and all that kind of stuff. And what's always, you know, what's always bothered me about this is, um, is the fact that we just can't speak of this openly. You know, why, why do we need to cloak it in empowerment? I mean, yeah. it's like it's an auction. It's an ovary auction. Eggs! <laughs> Fresh, young eggs for sale. I mean, that's what's going on. And bring your resources. Now put on a bid and put out your lower lip and here comes the princess into your harem. Um, so I, I I, just want from the world some basic honesty. Right. And, uh, you know, like, I don't know if you've ever had... Or maybe you are one. <laughs> I don't know. I doubt it. But if you've ever had a, a, a woman who, uh, you know, is young and, and hot and, and dresses attractively and so on, there's nothing wrong with any of that. But yeah. she come up, comes up and just seems to be bewildered about how guys just can't look at her as a friend. Right. 
And they just, they just, they just, you know, like I, I try to be nice to these guys and they just get so attached and you know, like, like she's bewildered. Like it has never crossed her mind <laughs> that we're all here because men with more resources mated with more fertile women, that that's the only reason we exist as a species. And I just wish we could be honest about it. Um, you know, uh, wh- why are you going to law school? So I can afford a good egg holder. <laughs> I mean, it's not the only reason for human motivation, but why are you learning guitar? Because apparently it makes women's panties vaporize. (laughs) That's that's the plan. Man, woman, clothing. Man, woman, guitar, naked. (laughs) So um, I just I just wish people would be more honest about it. Um, And uh, this has to be charity and empowerment and so on. It's like. They're in swimsuits. <laughs> Although I think they've just ditched the swimsuit bit uh, from from one of them. But, uh, you know, they're about to faint from dehydration. <laughs> so I, I just I just wish we, you know, we, you know, we, we like looking at attractive people. Yeah. And, you know, that's it used to be more the case that the man didn't have to be quite as attractive, but had to be. um a, a solid provider, you know, like the Cary Grant kind of thing. Um, I'm thinking of uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. That was Gregory Gregory Peck. Um, Good-looking guy, a great-looking guy. But, you know, he had a solidity and a wholesomeness and a, a, a solidity, a, a um, uh, predictability to him uh, that was what was considered attractive back in the day, a suaveness and so on. Now it's, you know, mostly sit-ups and liposuction and stuff, but that's for a variety of reasons. But... I mean, I don't, it's empowering insofar as female beauty comes with power uh, and, and male resources come with power. There's a reason why 18-year-old models hang out with Silvio Berlusconi, the, 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 I think he's the former PM of Italy and uh, professionally, he just looks like, like the kind of guy you shake his hand firmly and you come out with like an olive oil coating on your <laughs> epidermis. And it's not because he's charming and, and great looking and all that. And the last thing I'll say before <clears throat> turning it over to you for, for your thoughts is that I think it's kind of um, it's it's kind of like a test. It's uh, like to me that the whole nice guy gentleman thing is is kind of like a test because uh, I mean biologically women want a guy who's going to be a good provider and that usually means that he's quite assertive if not outright aggressive and there's a reason why women uh you know spend so much time reading 50 shades of gray with one hand and so i i think that you know the we, we all say they want a nice guy but i think that's just to keep the weaklings at bay <laughs> you know so that, because i think that they almost want a guy who who kind of walks through the nice guy thing? Not that he's a jerk or abusive or anything like that, but he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You want a nice guy? I know that one. <laughs> and I think women are like, okay, well now that's interesting because <laughs> I've been told I want a nice guy, but uh, my eggs uh, want something else. But what do you think? Do you think it's uh, it's empowering? I no, I don't at all. Really, I think it kind of takes females down a notch in general. Just I don't know. It's, it was kind of hard to explain, but I guess prancing pr- 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 these women around on stage and saying, who's the prettiest? I have no idea how that would 
bring power to anybody. I guess I see what you're saying as far as, you know, beauty is power to a degree, but I'm just, I don't know. Oh, beauty gets money, right? Right. Obviously. I mean, they even reward the prettiest one, quote unquote, with cash. So (laughs) there's an example. Right. right And and that is, you know, men will bring resources. I mean, this goes on throughout the animal kingdom. The men, the males bring resources to the females. And then the one who brings the most or the best resources uh, is the one who gets the female. Right. Uh, and that you can understand sort of biological demand behind that. Sorry. Oh, there was a, I can't remember the name of the experiment. There's an experiment with monkeys. Ugh, I'm going back to my sociology class like six years ago, but um, that they had all these female and male monkeys in a cage together and they were turning the lights off. And in the morning, every, you know, progressively, they found that the female monkeys were doing less and less work and getting fatter and fatter. And so they decided to put night cameras on them. And they saw that the females were granting the males sex if they brought them bananas. <laughs> so in a Oh, very- yeah, absolutely. And you've probably heard a very similar kind of um, a research project where they uh, give uh, monkeys uh, uh, coins that they can redeem for food. And the women all go and buy food, and the female monkeys all go and buy food, and what do the male monkeys all go and buy? They buy sex, of course. <laughs> yeah, they buy they buy sex. Yes. And um, yeah, so it's uh, uh, it, it's just part of the way we are. Now, it doesn't mean that's all we are. We're not sort of solely defined by these biological drives or anything like that. But um, it it is empowering. It's. And it's empower like it's empowering in a way that uh, I'm trying to organize my thoughts here for once in this damn show. <laughs> but um, would you say that you are uh, a very intelligent uh, person? I to a degree. <laughs> okay, to what degree? I mean, I I don't know. I have schooling under my belt. I am articulate. When not under pressure, <laughs> I feel I write fairly well. Um, I understand concepts. I mean, <laughs> what are you looking for here? No, no, I just, I mean, you, you, to, to raise these questions, to raise these issues, to listen to this show, I'm going to give you some significant brain power, right? I mean, that's just people of average intelligence, you know, get shocked, leave appallingly outraged YouTube comments and vanish into the ether to go watch PewDiePie, right? Right. <laughs> so so you are uh, an intelligent, intelligent person. I don't want to say like an intelligent woman because it sounds like, <laughs> as opposed to all these other women, just an intelligent person. And so on the bell curve, you're off to the right, you know, off to the high, higher IQ area. Right. Thank you. <laughs> and, and, and you have power because of that. You have, you have clarity, you have connection, you have capacity to see consequences and, uh, you know, income and opportunities and all of that are highly rated or ranked or correlated to IQ. In fact, you could get rid of four years of college if you could give potential employees a 15 minute IQ test, but that's illegal. So, <laughs> um, so, so the reason I'm saying is that, so there's, there's a bell curve everywhere. There's a bell curve everywhere. And these women won the genetic lottery and have obviously worked very hard 
at, at what they're doing, and they have received some power out of that. You go to college. You work very hard to develop your mind. Uh, maybe you're a super hottie too. I mean, that's that's obviously possible. <laughs> but um, you're on a bell curve. They're on a bell curve. I'm on a bell curve. Everyone's on a bell curve. And even those people who uh, are average are on a bell curve in that they have – there's a bell curve of like social comfort. Mm-hmm. You know, so like the people who are um, less intelligent feel sort of left behind in society and they don't quite get it and they kind of get frustrated a lot. And people who are super smart have a tough time fitting into society. So even the people who are in the average get the comfort of being right in the middle of the pack in terms of social comfort and, and you know, feeling part of the species that they're, <laughs> that they're among. Yeah. But um, I, uh, you know, so, so they've got the beauty. Other people have the brains. Other people have the singing voice. Other people have the instincts. Other people have the... Uh, creativity, other people have the musicality. I mean, it's just bell curves everywhere. And a lot of times we look at other bell curve situations, like the beauty pageant is one, and it seems kind of odd to us, but I would argue that we're all part of the bell curve at, at some at some place, in, in some area, if that makes sense. Yes, that makes sense. Well, And there's, there's power. And, and the other thing too, don't worry, they'll, <laughs> they'll get theirs, right? <laughs> Because because they, time, they you know yes. they get older right smart smarter people get smarter uh, prettier people just get droopy right yeah <laughs> accurate well can I offer you another Paula Shugart quote that I was interested in getting your uh, take on part of who it the Paula Shugart the uh, president of the pageants oh okay okay so. She had been praised for coming up with these inventive ideas of kind of uh, bringing about awareness that these things were coming up and how she was the shows, I mean, and by putting the contestants for the beauty pageant on other shows, one of them being uh, deal or no deal. I think I read, but one of them was fear factor. And uh, her quote from that says, nothing could break down the stereotypes of beauty Queens faster than than having them compete on Fear Factor. I was wondering how you felt about that. <laughs> I've never watched Fear Factor, but it's like, it's an eat bugs show, right? <laughs> Amongst other things, but yeah. Yeah, like dirty do, and, do horrifying things. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, right. Right. I just, yeah. I, I myself, not a big fan of spiders. Winston Smith, it's rats. Me, it's spiders. I'm better with them now because my daughter's a big fan. I got more used to them. I remember when I was a kid... Um, Growing up uh, in, in England, the whole country shut down whenever a Bond film was on <laughs> TV because it was the 70s. So England was just becoming this progressively Eastern European socialist wreck of a former empire hub. And um, I just remember Sean Connery, he had, he had, a, he had a, uh, a scene where a, a tarantula goes up his, his, his naked chest. <laughs> and I just remember thinking, man, you know. I wouldn't mind being a movie star, but <laughs> I think I'd have to draw the line at tarantulas. Um, so having those people in Fear Factor is a way of them what? According to her, breaking down stereotypes. Seems like a great way to get ratings, if you yeah. ask me. Let's, <laughs> let's put the pretty people thought. on the show and uh, force them to eat bugs and hang out of airplanes and do all types of stuff <laughs> that's going to put them way outside their comfort zone. So they have meltdowns, freakouts, and uh, everyone gets to laugh and applaud <laughs> as this is occurring. So pretty people being overly emotional, kind of hysterical. I'm not saying without cause, 
you know, I I would say, you know, put put them in a chess tournament. <laughs> maybe we're breaking some stereotypes. I mean, they can do it in a bathing suit if they want. Maybe that would help them with some of the young male contestants. But um, I don't know. Um, have them do um, a rap, like like spontaneous live rap or or beat poetry stuff or. Um, that to me would be more of, you know, ah, there's a mouse, you know, this yeah, kind of thing. I'm not right. sure that that's breaking a lot of stereotypes. Right. I don't feel it is at all, really. I just thought I'd get your take on it. Right. Have you watched the show? Um, do you like it? Oh, God, I haven't seen it in years. I used to watch it when I was a teenager. I'd seen some episodes, but it's been a very, very long time. And I certainly don't recall right. any any beauty queens on there <laughs> so they had a show I, I have no idea what it's called but they had a show where they dropped people into the jungle naked uh-huh. <laughs> and um they of course had you know like uh ex-army rangers who have spent the last 18 years of their lives hanging upside down like a bat doing hypermuscular M- matthew mcconaughey style crunches <laughs> and <laughs> turning their the skin over their giant abs into what is effectively half invisible rice paper and uh, and so they have all these hot people, and um, they're naked in the jungle. And um, I, I guess maybe that's considered to be – I've never watched one, but I guess that's considered to be maybe breaking some stereotypes too. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. All right, then. <laughs> so, Steph, the well, question is, what can women learn from men? Do you have an answer for that? Oh, I don't have an answer. <laughs> <laughs> I have Laura, you should have done the ooh and ah and, you know, disgruntled <laughs> mumbling. And when I asked that question, so we could mask the Miss Universe pageant. But uh. <laughs> I did. I, I'm sorry. I was trying to look this up and uh, I, I didn't have any luck. I really was listening. It was pretty easy to look up, but I, I can't find it. I saw this article a couple of days ago and it was a, a woman who had the same sort of questions that you had. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, like I'm looking at this beauty pageant. These women are gorgeous. They're electric. They're beautiful, and and so on. But is it really empowering? Ah, you know, maybe it's just really degrading. On the other hand, these women—it's their dream. They've really pursued it. They've won the genetic lottery. Why shouldn't they use what nature gave them to their best advantage? Yeah, but it really is just about looks, and it really is. Yes, but at the same time, they have to have a talent, and they do lots of exercise, and they, you know. But on the and I just like Bing, 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 you know, like. <laughs> Like women's brains in general (laughs) seem to me like, you know, those, I think they're called Newton, whatever those things They go, and they're like a bunch of beads hanging from these triangles and they sort of one hits and the other one goes up. I remember talking about this when I was in uh, Texas to to give a speech, you know, women is like, it's stuck in the revolving door of, but on the other hand, well, yeah, on the other hand, well, no, it's true. But on the other hand, (laughs) We can't be fickle. Just (laughs) open the door and walk through. No, no, I'm stuck in this little rotating thing. On the other hand. (laughs) And I I get it. I mean, I I, I get that way too. But um, I don't, I mean, if there's more that you want to add, uh, I certainly don't want to go off on a rant if there's more that you wanted to say. Uh, No, I mean, that was, that was mostly it. I guess the other thing that I don't really understand is how there's so many people you know, as I had said, crying equality, especially women, and then they go and watch this, and I just don't see how this can, you know, equals equality for women at all, really, but not even amongst women themselves. But, yeah, this thing has over 8 million viewers, so I'm sure many of them are crying feminist, and, you know, and I just, I don't know. I don't really have much to say about that. I just wanted to make a point. (laughs) 
Well, you know, the basic reality is that uh, I, I think that equality before the law, sure. Equality before the laws of man, women, and physics, absolutely. We all need air. But equality, to me, is a resentful pickpocket from people who feel that they lack something essential. And I'm just not a big fan of even the very concept of equality. I mean, it's like saying that the ideal is for all human beings to be the same height. Right. What would that even mean? I mean, (laughs) what does that mean? And we also, it's also putting forward the proposition that somehow people will be happier if there's more equality. And I really don't think that that's true. Like, for instance, I could not be a surgeon. Right. I mean, it's gross. <laughs> I mean, it's really icky. And I watch an episode of Bones, like half the time I got my hand in front of the screen, like, oh, God, I can't watch, right? It's gross, but, but I, I, I'm, I'm glad that there are people who do it. They're different from me. As far as capacity for surgery would go, I'm way on the left of the bell curve. They're way on the right. We're not equal in that. Yeah. Uh, there are people who have the most magnificent singing voices. Freddie Mercury proudly never took, never took a singing lesson and smoked. <laughs> I've taken lots of singing lessons. I don't sound like Freddie Mercury. It's just the way that it is. And... So I, I think that this equality thing, this um, Nietzsche has this this argument or this idea, which I'll just paraphrase very briefly, called um, the slave morality. And um, the, the slaves who are ruled by their masters um, can't rebel, uh, won't have an uprising, and won't attempt to take the place of their masters. But what they try to do is they try to put out these sort of noxious ideas that make their masters feel guilty and to attempt to pull them back down into the sort of slave morality. And, and there's an argument, um, Nietzsche sort of has this argument that this, this sort of master morality was responsible for the, the great achievements of antiquity, particularly the Greeks and the Romans. And then the slave morality, the morality of resentment, uh, spread like this noxious fume from uh, Christianity and then took down the empire because what happens is then those who are strong, those who are proud, and, and Nietzsche certainly did allow for ethics uh, in the master morality. It wasn't just about domination or anything, but, you know, courage and forthrightness and honesty and, and, and a, a respect for martial prowess and, and uh, uh, competence in aggression and so on. All of these things were part of it, but I don't know if you ever had this when you were a kid. But when I was a kid, if, if I had a piece of gum, do you know what the teacher would, would say? Hmm. What's that? it out, I'm, assu- I'm assuming? No, uh, it was, um, well, did you bring enough for everyone? Oh, yes. <laughs> did you get that one too? I, I've heard that as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that is, you, you can't enjoy your gum unless everyone has the gum. And you cannot enjoy the girl if other people are lonely. And you cannot enjoy running if there's a kid in a wheelchair. 
And you cannot enjoy your strength if there are people who are weak. And you cannot enjoy your intelligence if there are people who resent it. You cannot enjoy your money if there are people without. You don't want to eat your food as a kid? What are you told? There are starving kids elsewhere in the world. Yeah. You should enjoy this food because there are other children who are eating termites. <laughs> Although, given how my mom cooked, termites actually would seem pretty good. Tastes like chicken. <laughs> so, we, we are fascinated by inequality. I was uh, reading to my daughter the other day about genius kids. She was curious. Genius kids. And, I mean, some of them are just amazing what they can do. There was this one kid. She, she was an Indian girl. She, she became a Microsoft certified professional at the age of nine. Tragically died at the age of 16. And so, like, if you look around at the world that you live in, Almost everything that is the most valuable to you was created by people who are damn well not equal to you or me. You know, I, I spent some time as an entrepreneur in business. Bill Gates or Steve Jobs, I was not. <laughs> Those guys had significantly better skills, let's say, in business than I did. I'd like to think maybe I'm a bit better at philosophy than them, but <laughs> that's just part of my particular bell curve placement. But all of these amazing things, the, the guy who invented the polio vaccine, Alexander Salk, I think his name was. Genius to put that together, incredibly hard work. And saved millions of lives. Saved millions of lives. And a, a remarkable person. And so we kind of want to take all of these incredible gifts given to us by exceptional people and, and it's, it's, it's tear them out of their hands and spread them all around to make everything equal. I think that's a bit of a female thing because I think boys are very much like, let's compete and see who's the best. And th that's not, you know, it's a big stereotype. It's very general and there's lots of exceptions and so on. But I think that there is a philosophy that says whoever wins, we all win. Right. I mean, I, I, is there a sport that you like to watch? No, <laughs> I'm not a very big sports person. All right. Um, who's your favorite movie actor? Oh my gosh! I see. I don't even really pay attention to that sort of stuff. Uh... Do you have a flat square device in your house <laughs> that looks like a window <laughs> into a hyperkinetic other dimension? I did. Call it pulling out celebrity names. Let's go with Edward Norton. He's he's pretty good. Go there. Oh, Eddie N. Oh, yeah. No, he's a, he's a very good actor. Indeed. Okay. So, I mean, Edward Norton is exceptional, right? Right. I don't know if it's talent. I don't know if it's hard work and so on. Primal Fear, was that the first film he was in with Richard Gere? Wow. What an acting performance. Fight Club. Killer. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, even Stone, I could live with. <laughs> yeah. So... That, that's exceptional. That, and, and so we, we only want to look at the exceptional people... And we only want to make the world egalitarian. But nobody's going to go to Carnegie Hall to listen to karaoke. Right. 
So we have this ambivalent relationship, you know, on the other hand, stuck in the revolving, the revolving door. We want people to be exceptional so that we can get all the fruits of their talent and focus and ambition. But at the same time, we want everyone to be equal so nobody feels left out or left behind. Yeah. And I don't know, there's no, there's no answer to it. I mean, it's no like one or the other. Of course, we, we don't want people to be left behind if at all avoidable. But at the same time, we do have this belief, which I think goes right back to the idea of the soul, That because according to the soul, we are all equal. There's no bell curve in the soul. More susceptible to Satan. <laughs> Better as a drag queen. <laughs> Can sing high. The soul is immaterial and, and is made by God and is, is, is like an impression from a king's ring on wax. For everyone, it's the same. So there is an egalitarianism in religion that doesn't exist in the biological world. Biological world is, is compete and win, compete and win, compete and win. Or die, and the genes die with you. And so in, in the realm of the soul, which translates into the realm of democracy, of uh, voting, one person, one vote. Really? Really? <laughs> That's how <laughs> it really should be. No, it should not be that way, of course. And... and there should be, obviously, as you know, I'm an anarchist, there should be no voting in terms of political power at all. But uh, there is this idea that uh, we're all told that egalitarianism is, is, is an ideal, and yet we all want to be famous. We can't all be famous. Right? One of the, I think the most important thing for kids in England these days is to be famous. That's what they want the most, to be famous and have a dad. <laughs> Wouldn't put them in that order, but... <laughs> And so we want, we want to look at these famous people, and at the same time, we want everything to be egalitarian. But I think that the idea of egalitarianism is very toxic for people's ambition, because they want the world to smooth things out for them, rather than go and achieve their highest potential themselves. Like Barack yeah. Obama in his recent State of the Union, he's really, you know, he's really tickling the class warfare ivories, right? And it's like, well, go tax the rich and give you free stuff. And... I think that's a very sad thing for people to be susceptible to. I mean, when I grew up, um, I mean, obviously, when I was in boarding school, there were lots of rich kids around. But when I was in um, high school, there were two two guys there. Um, one of them was in my theater troupe. And, I mean, their family was staggeringly rich. And I remember going over to their house, and it's like, because, you know, I had this tiny little apartment or whatever, and, and, and no car and they go there's like nine cars parked in the garage you go into the house it's like oh wow this is a nice house they're like no 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 this is <laughs> this is just the antechamber you know on we go <laughs> yeah pick, pick up some crumb and, <laughs> and some cram and some um p some peaches we're gonna go on a hike to see the whole house and the same thing happened when i visit my dad in africa some very rich friends of the houses just went on and on furniture and all of them it's amazing and when I would be around people with a lot of money, my first thought wasn't, boy, they, it'd be great if I could get the government to tax them, <laughs> right. to, to give me their money so that I could have money. I mean, that to me would be like, well, that guy's dating a really attractive woman. It'd be really great if the government could force that woman to go out with <laughs> me, too. <laughs> it's like, no, now that I know it's possible, maybe I can aim to get a couple of coins together in my life you know like yeah. you look at the rich you don't say i want their money taken from me by government it's like no 
leave them with their money so that when I get rich, I can keep my money too or give it to charity or do whatever I want with it. Yeah. And But I think people have kind of been broken down a lot and been very tempted by this sort of low-hanging fruit of political redistribution to the point where they say, I hate those rich guys. They should give me their money. Which all they're confessing is that they never think they could achieve it themselves, which is, I think, a shame because maybe they could. Yeah, I'd agree with that. All right. Well, listen, I appreciate that. Obviously, I can, I'm not going to get to Mike's question, just so everybody knows. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we can do that on a separate it, show. <laughs> it's a solo cast, and I think that would... Uh, and not a solo cast like that woman in the university library. But, um, no. yeah, yeah, look it up. Look it up! <laughs> it took me a second. I got it. <laughs> it just... It just... It was there. I clicked on it by accident. <laughs> I thought it was the twin moons of Tatooine. Anyway. Um... Who do we have next? Thanks again. (laughs) All right. Dan is up next. Uh, Dan wrote in and said, if peaceful parenting is what the world needs, then more must be better. How many kids is too many? He also asked, how long can a family reasonably homeschool? And uh, regarding balancing children and career advancement, is it worth working 50-hour weeks given the lost time with your kids? Well, I don't know that philosophy could answer these questions. Um, I mean, they're interesting questions for sure. You know, how many kids is, is too many? I think that you want to um, be able to spend a reasonable amount of time, you know, and one-on-one time as well with kids. You know, a, a lot of times kids, they get into this like pink blur of like giant chirping <laughs> baby bird mouths, which parents are just throwing worms into. And parents don't often say, okay, you know, it's we've got three kids or whatever it's my afternoon to go and spend time with just one of the kids and have that sort of one-on-one relationship. They're just sort of the squalling mess of six arms and six legs. So I think have kids to the point where you can have quality time with each, each of the kids, not, not exclusively, but I think that's important. Um, 50 hours a week. I mean, yeah, I, my I mean, argument is always. Been, sorry to interrupt. Sorry, I wanted to. I wanted to no, break no, no. out the questions a little bit. Um, the first one, like how many kids is too many? One of the reasons being, um, you know, I'm uh, I'm pretty excited about uh, Free Domain Radio. I'm a big fan. I've listened over a thousand episodes. Donate every month, and I recommend others do the same. Um, Thank you. And so I'm 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 full in. <laughs> I'm uh you know I'm interested in homeschooling and all of that. And so I know that homeschooling obviously would take a lot of additional time compared to. Uh, sending away to school as well. And so, you know, given that uh, wanting to spend a lot of one-on-one time with kids and wanting to be able to homeschool them at home, uh, but not having any myself, I'm trying to understand what would be a a realistic number. Because obviously, uh, you know, if peaceful parenting is good, then more should be better. So why not, you know, why not aim for the, aim for the stars, aim for the clouds. Um, but without getting carried away to the point where, uh, your relationships with your kids start to suffer because you have too many, especially with all the, uh, time it takes to raise a kid, especially with homeschooling. Yeah. And I mean, I only have one, so I'm not going to be able to speak with much experience here, but, um, I I think that you can homeschool all the way. Um, that that's no particular barrier. And I think the statistics, speak quite well of how well the homeschooled kids do. So I don't think there's any limit there. I mean, obviously check with your local law enforcement. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure, sure. That, uh, right. But um, I don't think there's any practical uh, limit uh, to it. I think that homeschooling with multiple kids is probably a little bit easier 
because they can also mentor each other and, and instruct each other on their various skills and abilities, which I think is good because it gives them a chance to mentor as well as be students. So um, I think that's all great. As far as working goes, it's a tough call, you know, because once you have a very solid relationship with your kids, you don't have to be around quite as much. I mean, I simply say this, so there are days when I'm just like get a, obsessed with a particular project and it's not often, but uh, you know, I won't see my daughter a huge amount and, and she's fine and she's, she's totally fine with it. And, um, you know, then the next day we'll spend like eight hours doing something fun. And, uh, so I think that's, but, but as far as work goes, I think that my suggestion has always been, I don't think it is. My suggestion has always been that try to get some coin in the bank, at least for the first couple of years, maybe work less uh, for the first couple of years of your kid's life so that you can be there uh, as much as possible. And then when they get older, you can uh, gear up your career uh, if you feel that's important or if that is important to you. But um, for yeah, the first the couple reasons, of years. One of the reasons I ask yeah. is I know that when you, you talk about uh, doing entrepreneurial uh, activities, especially for young people, uh, even more so when they have more time before they have kids, and how it's, you know, it's not unusual to put in a lot of effort, you know, blood, sweat and tears raising a business. And so I'm kind of curious if if those suggestions also apply to people with kids or or, or when you uh, give that kind of advice, are you suggesting, uh, you know, for young people before they have kids? Uh, I'm just trying to get a better grasp but, on, but, the, uh, on the on the work right. family balance. Yeah, but I mean, it's not something that you decide. Um. It's something that you would talk over with your kids. Gotcha. Right. So if if they're too young, then try to be there as much as possible. Right? Yeah. Until they're like a couple of years old or whatever. But try and be there as much as possible. But it, it is the kind of thing where you would say to the kids, listen, do you, do you want more time with daddy or do you want us to have more money? I mean, I think I know what they're going to say. But sure, sure, sure. That would be a choice that you would make with their very significant input, if that makes sense. Yeah, and that's another thing that I think could come into play with the number of kids too. It's like obviously the fewer kids, the less uh, salary requirements you would have. So you would be able to much more easily spend more time, maybe even work part-time sometimes. Well, yeah, but of course, remember, um, salary is only one half of the equation of financial security. The other half is expenses, right? Sure, sure. And so, you know, if, if you, I don't know, buy a place in the country, grow some of your own food, uh, maybe you don't need two cars, maybe you can find a way to work at home. Uh, and um, so there's lots of things that you could do to keep your expenses down and therefore not have as much of a challenge when it comes to feeding, clothing the kids and all that. So it's not just, you know, if you need more money. Um, we, you know, we have this come, well, here are my expenses and I need more money. It's like, well, just lower your expenses, you know, if, if sure, at all sure. possible. And there's usually a lot that we can do to lower our expenses if we, we really have to. Right? Oh, I, I agree. I'm a, I'm a definitely a low expense kind of guy. Um, when you suggest, yeah, I mean, that that's how human beings grew up throughout most of, of, of human history. And the other thing too, is that, um, you know, the, the, the great challenge of modern parenting is these goddamn electronics. And that, that is a, a huge a challenge. Uh, Mike, if you can get me a study or two, we were just talking about this uh, this week um, as sort of our research team meetings. And it's, it's rough, you know. I mean, 
they are, you know, the, the, the electronics are so shiny and so distracting and so engaging and so enjoyable and all this, that, and the other. And we, we do sort of tell ourselves that the computers make our kids smarter. And there was this big government program in the States to try and get a laptop into the hands of every underprivileged kid and so on. And wherever they handed out these laptops, the moment their kids got a hold of them, the kids' math and reading scores plummeted because Minecraft is more fun than reading. Uh, and um, so that, that is a big challenge for, uh, for parents these days. And there are significant indicators that uh, children who grow up with their noses buried in electronics um, end up with significantly impaired social skills and, and so on. Um, and naturally, of course, right? I mean, that when I was a kid, um, one of the things that I did like about my family was that dinner was conversation time. And these days, um, you know, I went uh, to um, um, a restaurant, fast food restaurant, let's be honest, <laughs> with my daughter uh, the other day. And, um, you know, she's in the phase where she's reading everything she can get her eyes on. And I introduced her to Braille because there was a door that said staff only and underneath it was in Braille. So we talked about Braille. And then we talked about how we would invent, invent our own sign language. And so, you know, how would we say I love you without using any words, just using our hands or my cat really needs to pee or <laughs> something like that. And it was really a huge amount of fun. I mean, <laughs> of course, you can imagine, right? And sure. I, I really enjoyed her creativity in how to communicate with a made-up sign language some very abstract things. And, you know, I, I, that's great fun. But, you know, one of the things that's always floating around is, you know, all the other families where the parents are maybe chatting a bit or maybe playing with their phones and the kids are all on their electronics. And this is what happens. The parents sit down, out come the electronics and poof goes any capacity for a conversation. And um, that is, um, it's a huge problem. I mean, I, I think it is a problem that is going to be a world changing problem, a society changing problem. And um, I, again, I have no problem with computer games. I have no problem with electronics in any fundamental way. It is um, helpful and useful, but you really do need to compete with electronics as a parent. And we have the option of upping our game or surrendering to the electronics. And I think a lot of parents are surrendering to the electronics. Seven hours a day, up two and a half hours over the last decade, estimated by the American Academy of Pediatrics. The kids spend on entertainment media is having serious consequences. Seven hours a day. It's sugar for the brain. So here are some of the consequences. Impeded social interaction. This is the reason the Academy recommends absolutely no electronics or screen time for children under two. If you're in front of the screen, you have less interaction with a parent or caregiver, which will directly impact the vocabulary babies are learning to develop, as well as overall social development, says a researcher. Those consequences don't disappear as kids get older. Some parents argue, it's okay because my kid is using the computer all day and chatting with friends online. She's building social skills, right? No, she says. They're missing out on nonverbal communication, rich and deep conversational skills, real-time social skills, knowing how to respond. We're wired to interact with people and our brain is wired to learn through social interactions. Uh, squelched creativity. If you look at it simply when you're engaging in a phone, an iPad, a computer, you're not using critical thinking skills. You're not being creative. 
You're essentially glued to something you're visually watching instead of working on all of your senses and development. Screen time can be educational, but only to an extent. The researcher says if kids are learning through a screen, they're not learning how they're wired to learn. Childhood obesity. For each hour of TV watched, a child would consume an additional 167 calories, according to the Archives of Pediatric and Adolescent Medicine. Interrupted sleep patterns. Researcher says there's preliminary information coming out about how the blue light of smartphones and tablets can have an effect similar to caffeine. The light messes with the sleep cycle and tricks the brain into thinking it's still daylight because it's getting all this stimulation. Behavior problems. Elementary students spending more than two hours a day in front of a computer or TV screens are more likely to have social, emotional, and attention problems, according to the Mayo Clinic. Sometimes, though, parents question an attention disorder diagnosis by saying their child can sit still for hours while watching TV. (laughs) Yeah, well. Well, they're able to do so because it's passive stimulation. The brain doesn't have to work for it. Information overload. Another researcher says, our goal is a brain that's efficient. Movies like Lucy make us assume more activation is better, but that, and that's not necessarily the case. We want teens to work smarter and not harder, not for them to be trying to be on and all over the place all the time. Human beings aren't wired for multitasking, this woman says. What we're really doing is toggling back and forth quickly and creating shadow distributed brain networks as opposed to optimizing strong and resilient connections. A study published in the journal Computers in Human Behavior found that sixth graders who went five days without exposure to technology were significantly better at reading human emotions than kids who had regular access to phones, televisions, and computers. At the beginning and end of the five-day study period, both groups of kids were shown images of nearly 50 faces and asked to identify the feelings being modeled. Researchers found that the students who went to camp scored significantly higher when it came to reading facial emotions or other nonverbal cues and students who continue to have access to the media devices. So that's only five days. And, and you can go on and on. I, again, I, I, I'm not a Luddite. I mean, I get that these things are cool and, and fun and there can be some, some good stuff for sure uh, that comes out of computers. But um, it's a different world from when I was a kid. I mean, I got my first computer um, when I was 12 and I used it to play some games, but basically I learned how to code because games sucked. <laughs> well, Star Raiders was great. Although the guy who wrote it never got a penny. But anyway, it's amazing what you can fit on 8K of assembly. But um, you had made games, because, but that's not the way things are now. I mean, how many kids are programming games? Obviously a few, but uh, most of the games are so absorbing and, and so enticing. And, and the freemium model lets you just sample forever. And they're not interacting with people and we are a social species and i am concerned about conversational qualities of children and and their capacity to to interact in real time with other kids and and in general i've always had um a problem trying to chat with a lot of kids they just don't seem to have conversational skills, how to ask questions, how to relate, how to keep a conversation going and so on. They're either kind of giggly and hysterical and distracted, you know, or they're kind of inert and monosyllabic. And I think that's a a real shame because the great delight and glory of human existence is our conversations. And 
Um, so I think if you're home, uh, you know, I don't obviously forbid my daughter electronics, but um, I view it as my challenge to compete with electronics and to make interacting with me more fun than electronics. So I take it on as a challenge, but I'm not sure that's the most common reaction. Does, does that make any sense? Oh, definitely. I had to, I wanted to bring one more question um, with regards to the number of kids that's that's reasonable or realistic. One of the reasons I asked that as well is that uh, my parents were not uh, very good to me growing up, and so uh, I don't speak to them anymore. And I know that that will definitely make it harder to raise a large number of kids because having grandparents around obviously you know makes it easy, gives the parents a break, or also allows you know more one-on-one time if you have four to six adults rather than just two. Um, and so I was wondering, you know, what kind of impact do you think that might make on uh, a reasonable maximum for kids if it's, uh, and I don't have a, a, a potential wife at the moment, but uh, in the future, if I were to meet one who was also in a similar situation that uh, didn't have uh, the greatest appearance growing up, would only having two adults present, and obviously if, you know, we could have friends help out and things like that, um, but without having grandparents around, would that put a, uh, a damper on the, uh, on a number of kids that would be reasonable? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough call. And I'm obviously very sorry to hear about what's happened with your, uh, with your family of origin. But I would say that again, it's the chance for you to up your game. Can you make friendships that will give you the same kind of reliability and intimacy and continuity as a healthy family would. And, you know, can you get close to your neighbors? Can you, you know, that is a way of sort of upping your game. Um, I, and look, I mean, there's, if, if, you, if you have the option, if, you, if your parents are healthy, and they don't have to be perfect, obviously nobody is, but if your parents are relatively healthy and you have kids, having grandparents around is, is great. And I think studies have shown that it is, uh, positive. I mean, not to the point where, you know, if they're horrible people or whatever, I think that's just going to be negative. But um, I, yeah, think I think that I think the challenge then is for you to create that, that kind of same commitment through voluntary social relations rather than through a family. Sorry, you said? I was saying uh, I think that on a on a net, having my parents around children uh, would would not be a good thing. Uh, I understand the, the definite value. And I wish that I, I did have parents that were good with kids. But I would say that I'd be afraid to introduce any potential kids that I have around them. I think it would be a net negative. Um, and yeah, so you're sorry for that. Yeah, but go ahead. And so you're saying that, uh, you, you know, you can definitely make up for that with, uh, <clears throat> a lot of strong, uh, friend and neighbor relations that might be able to also, uh, even out the, that, uh, detriment you could say. Yeah, I, I think so. It doesn't mean that you have to, um, be alone in the raising of your kids. Uh, there are, I mean, the great people out there who want to be in your life because you're a good friend. Gotcha. Yep. All right. Well, uh, I think that wraps up all the questions I had. Thanks for your time. All right. So listen, um, best of luck to you. And I, I hope your fertility matches your ambition. Be a, <laughs> we, we can't always outthink them. Maybe we can outbreed them. That's <laughs> Hey, why, why not? <laughs> all, right, all right. Thanks. Thanks, Steph. Mike also mentioned that there are theories that the rise in screen time is tied to the rise in ADHD. And it is tough, you know, when you have a geriatric teacher up there squeaking away on a blackboard or a whiteboard, it's kind of tough to compete with Candy Crush. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you get the teacher that's uh, been in her job for 20 years who's, 
you know, possibly only there because her union won't let anyone fire her competing with, you know, Clash of Clans or something. That's going to be tough. Yeah. Uh, tough. After your cocaine bender, I'm going to introduce <laughs> you to the slowed down Eskimo throat singing. <laughs> Do you want to learn math? No. Not really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Alex is up next. Alex wrote in and said, when we say that something is preferable, we imply a condition or a goal as the basis for comparison. For example, if we want to determine a valid truth about the behavior of matter and energy, it is preferable to use the scientific method. When we talk about universally preferable behavior, what condition do we imply? For example, when we say to not murder is UPB, do we not imply the following? If you want to be virtuous, you should not murder. Close to no, I think that's – hi, Alex. These are great questions, and I appreciate you bringing them up. Did you want to add something else? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, so first of all, before we start, I wanted to say a big thank you for making this world a more peaceful and rational place. Uh, a few friends um, of mine and I recently started a philosophical project in Russian inspired by Freedom in Radio. And so we are working right now on a summary of UPB. We spent hours and hours discussing it among ourselves and on the forum and we had a group call and I think people get the idea of UPB. But when we start digging into details, then we have questions that people have different opinions about. And so I hope to get some of them answered here. Well, th thanks for your kind words and congratulations on your, your project. I mean, that's very inspiring and I, I really you. appreciate that. And I'll certainly do what I can to answer and if I can't answer, I promise to keep working on it until hopefully I can. <laughs> so you're saying that there's a conditionality to preferable. You know, if you want to lose weight, you should eat less and exercise more or vice versa. If you, so there's an if which preconditions right. the preferability, right? Right, right. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. Um, as... Uh, as Hume famously pointed out, there you can't get an is from an ought. Now, I, I think I found a backdoor to that, which has been particularly relevant right now. But certainly, preferences do not exist in reality. And, uh, you know, like the laws of physics are not open to my subjective whims. You know, I can't choose to step off a building and keep walking in like a Flintstones cartoon. So the laws of physics are not subject to this conditional, this if but um, certainly with ethics and, and anything that's around the free will, there is that aspect of it. So, um, but she said, if you want to be virtuous, comma, do not, oh, sorry, comma, if you want to be virtuous, I'm so used to voice dictating. If you want to be virtuous, do not murder. Is that right? Um, yeah, basically said that, so we have a rule that say you should not murder, right? So we say every time we have a preference when something is preferable, we need a condition for it or a goal, just like with uh, the scientific method, for example, right? So when we say you should not murder, what would be the condition here? Where okay, when so binding? yeah, you should not murder is technically nagging. <laughs> it's not philosophy. Guys, don't pick my pockets. Hey, no stealing, no killing. Urgh. I mean, that's a commandment, right? Oh, you should not murder or don't murder if you want to be virtuous do not murder. But that's circular, and that doesn't break the problem of what is virtue. Because it's a tautology. So you say, well, not murdering is virtuous, and so if you want to be virtuous, do not murder. But all we've done is create a synonym for not murdering called virtue. But we haven't actually added 
anything. It's like the old, you know, when I was back in my debating team in my early 20s in college, you know, we were taught about tautologies, which is, uh, you know, Coke is it. And then I end up defining it as Coke. So I've just said Coke is Coke. It haven't really added anything. And so if virtue is then synonymous to don't murder or not murdering, then all you've done is create a logical equivalent between do not murder and virtue. But you haven't convinced anyone or you haven't really added anything as far as an argument go. So if you want to be virtuous, do not murder is not a philosophical statement. So the way that I would reframe that, not that I'm saying you should go, go and murder, but the way that I would reframe that, Alex, is I would say that murder cannot be universally preferable behavior. And and there's lots of reasons which I've gone over on the show a million times before. So, um, you know, the two guys in a room, they, they can't both murder because murder has to be unwanted. Otherwise, it's euthanasia or something. So you have, you can't both murder. Two guys can't both murder each other in the same room because murder then has to be something that both people universally prefer and universally reject at the same time. In, in the same way that if you want to borrow something of mine and I say, okay, you can take it from me, that's not theft. But to steal something from me means that I don't want you to steal it. And if stealing is universally preferable behavior, then I have to want you to steal from me. But at the same time, I have to, I have to not want you to steal from me because that's the only way that the condition of theft or unwanted removal of property will be met. So it is logically and practically impossible for two people to both follow the rule, murder is universally preferable behavior or rape is universally preferable behavior or theft or assault are universally preferable behaviors. Right, right. And yeah, so... Uh, sorry for interrupting. Yeah, you also yeah, go ahead. virtue uh, as acting in accordance with UPB, so I agree with you, right? We get a tautology here or a circle of reference. We define virtue through UPB and UPB through virtue here. But I was wondering what could be a condition here because do you think that every time when we talk about any preference, when we say that something is preferable, like uh, not murder is preferable, there should be a condition, like maybe it could be not virtuous, but if you want to act more. No, no, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, Alex, but mm -hmm. preferable is dropping the U. You're just making it into PB, <laughs> preferable behavior. It's the universal so, that mm -hmm. makes it ethics. So you can say murder, you could say murder cannot be universally preferable behavior. And therefore, to refrain from murdering is to act in accordance with universally preferable behavior. So th this makes it um, not a preference. Because that sounds like I like lemon meringue pie over bumbleberry or something. It's not the preference part that's essential. Because as you know, preferences exist in, in life as a whole that have nothing to do with ethics. Right? Koalas prefer eucalyptus leaves to eat. It doesn't make it an ethical choice for them, right? Lizards prefer the sunlight when it's, when it's hot. Uh, this is not an ethical. So, so preferences exist all over the place. Right? The, the lion prefers to eat the gazelle. The gazelle prefers to not be eaten by the lion. But these are not moral decisions. Or, or this not been in the realm of... It's the universality that makes the preferences specific to both human consciousness and philosophy. Because animals do not have the concept or the abstraction called universally. I mean, the, 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 obviously, you know, they can tell 
it's an, you know, a lion can tell it's an antelope rather than a rock and so on. So they have sort of sense data that they, they can conceptualize or they can abstract. But they do not have the concept of mammal versus lizard as, as sort of an idea. So it's the universally part that is really important. Most people focus on the preference, which is fine. It's certainly part of it, but it's a very tiny part of the preferences that living organisms have as a whole. And it's only living organisms that have preferences and the rocks or anything like that. Uh, you know, there was this old idea that Aristotle had with this sort of four elements, um, also a soul group. Um, and, you know, that, that there was a fire element was way up and that, that fire leapt up from the ground because it wanted to rejoin the element and the water element was below and water poured down a cliff because it wanted to rejoin. It had a preference to rejoin the element and so on. So, you know, entertaining nonsense in hindsight. But um, so I, I get that you, you're focusing on the preference stuff, which is important. But the most important thing to focus on is the universality. Um, so uh, so it, it, murder, the initiation of force as a whole is it cannot be universally preferable behavior and therefore you cannot propose it as an ethical standard now you can say some people like to murder Steph, hold on a second uh, so let me clarify this when we say a scientific method is universally preferable if we want to determine a valid truth about behavior of matter and energy right do we mean universally preferable here in the same way as we mean to not murder is universally preferable or in a different way? Well, I th I'm, tr I'm trying to sort of jam science into UBB, so give me, give me a second here to, to back this truck of So basically the question up. is, why do we have a condition there? Like if you want to determine a valid truth about uh, reality, right, then a scientific method is universally preferable. But if you don't want okay, to... Okay, so, you know, so hang on, hang on. Wait, wait, don't, don't keep talking while I'm trying to get my thoughts organized. I just get confused. Um, so I'm, tr I'm trying to sort of bring it back to the room. Bob and Doug, my two famous Canadian examples of, of logical consistency. So Bob and Doug cannot both steal from each other at the same time. I think we've, we've gone over that argument. So I'm sort of thinking about this. So in this environment, can Bob and Doug, can Bob pursue the scientific method while Doug consults chicken entrails to determine some truth about the universe. Well, they can, right? So that's how we know, I would say, that uh, science does not exist in the realm of morality. Because two people in the same room can both pursue science and not pursue science at the same time, which is not the case with something like rape or murder or theft or assault. And so that's how you get the if for one, but not for the other. So you would say to these two, two guys, you'd say to the guy using the scientific method, good on you, mate. And then you'd say to the guy who's reading chicken entrails, you're just getting dirty for no <laughs> particular reason other than your own delusions. So you would say to them, if you want to know something true about the universe, you need to use the scientific method. But with regards to theft, it's impossible for theft to be universally preferable behavior. Whereas two people can both pursue and not pursue science at the same time. Does that help at all? Right. But if we take the part it's possible, let's say, to not steal, right, to not murder, uh, should we have a condition there too? Just like with the scientific method we have, if you want to know the, tr the truth about reality, then, you know, 
the scientific method is preferable. No, no, because because theft cannot be universalized. Well, I'm talking about to not steal. So to not steal is universally preferable if I don't know, maybe if we want no, to no, act no. morally. No, no, no. To to not no, because th this is this is self-contained. There's no if in this part. Theft cannot be universally preferable behavior. You know, it's 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 completely impossible. It's a massive contradiction to to imagine that theft can be universalized. It can't happen either practically or theoretically. Okay. Whereas you cannot pursue science. Now, of course, people can go and steal. Of course, they can. Individuals can go and steal. But it cannot be universalized. Now, what's also true is that chicken entrail reading for discovering the truth about the universe also cannot be universalized, but at least one person can pursue science and one person cannot pursue science uh, in the same room. But with regards to theft, rape, assault, and murder, it's impossible for two people in the same room to achieve those as universal, universally preferable behavior. So in one, there's no if, you know, well, you know, if you want to be moral or something like that, it's just that these things cannot be universalized. They cannot be universally preferable behavior. Now, people can say, if they want, well, ethics doesn't have anything to do with universality, right? And, and that's a way that they would try and jump out of UPB. Okay, so but they would, then have, they, they would then have the challenge. If they say that ethics has nothing to do with universally, it's just preferable behavior, then they have to say how a lizard wanting to go into the sun is not in the realm of ethics, but things like rape and murder are. Now, they may say, if they really want to hang tight to this bobsled into the canyon of irrationality, they could say, well, yeah, a lizard's desire to go into the sun is an ethical, in which case I think that they just, I mean, you could tease that apart logically, but I think at that point they've just taken themselves out of the realm of rational consideration. And so if people say, well, ethics has nothing to do with universality, then they have to not use the term ethics and they just have to use the term personal preference. And then there are two kinds of personal preferences, of course. There are personal preferences which do not impose on other people, uh, do not infringe upon other people's liberties and personhood. And then there are personal preferences which do infringe on other people. So one personal preference might be, I really want to pick my nose. Well, um, <laughs> assuming I'm not on uh, some... Uh, kiss cam at a ball game that's going to gross people out. I'm not really infringing on other people. So if I'm sitting in my basement picking my nose, but if I want to go out and strangle some guy, then I am imposing, right? So there are these two kinds of preferences, one which is violently imposed upon another and then the other ones which aren't, whether it's trade or something that you're just personally doing to yourself, whatever. And to attempt to jam all of these things together, like the lizard wanting the sunlight and choices which are or preferences which are imposed upon others versus not imposed upon others, which are voluntary versus violent and so on then you're just jamming everything together and there's just this giant blob which is undifferentiated. And I think that would not even be remotely precise enough and not to allow for any divisions in that are rational and, and, and divisions which would be opposite in practice. So I would say that um, people can't dump the universality out of ethics. And the moment the universality is necessary for ethics, which I think I've made a pretty good case, um, again, people want to get more into the book, you really should. It's a, it's a pretty well-written book and it's pretty clear. There's some things I'd like to polish up, but we'll get to it. Oh, it's on the list. 
but um, it's at called Universally Preferable Behavior, a Rational Proof of Secular Ethics. You can get it at freedomainradio.com slash free. But um, I certainly would not argue that um, you could just dump universality out of preferences. And the moment you have universality, by definition, really, it has to be universal. So anything which cannot be universalized cannot be part of ethics because ethics is, by definition, universally preferable behavior. Steph, hold on a second. So Otherwise, it's something with the scientific else. Sorry, method, uh, with the scientific method, is it a universal preference or not? Is it universally preferable behavior? Um, yeah, so when we say... Well, if. Yeah, you've got the if. Mm -hmm. if. If you want to say something true about science, uh, sorry, if you want to say something true about the material world, you need to use the scientific method. Right, so it's a universal but with preference UPB, here, right? But with UPB, given that ethics is universally preferable behavior, I know that sounds like a tautology, but I've really made the case in the book, so I, you know, forgive me and, and dig it up, and if I haven't, please let me know. But... Hold on, Steph. Give me a second. Let me clarify. So when we talk about preferences, let's say we say this car is preferable to this car based on certain criteria, right? So scientific method is preferable to dancing, uh, praying to gods, for example, right? If we want to learn uh, truth about uh, reality, right? But when we get to UPB, you're saying that to not murder is universally preferable to, to murder, without any condition. Again, I, I don't know why I'm having trouble getting this across to you, but you keep going back to the preferable part, which is it is impossible for murder to be universalized. And because it can't be universalized, it cannot be ethical. Right, but there's still a preference, right? We prefer to not to murder over to murder. Right? No, 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 no. I just told you, I just told you, you're hung up on preference. And then you went right back to preference. Forget the preference. Okay. But that's there, Forget right? Forget the preference. No, the no. Preference here. Think of the logic of it. Think of the logic of it. Do you understand that it's not possible for two men to steal from each other at the same time? Right, right. Yeah, I totally get that part. But I was just okay, wondering. Okay, so, so no, no, don't, don't, don't go any further. Don't go any further. Stop, right. stop. All right. Stop. <laughs> Step by step, because you keep on, you, you, you got a pogo stick with a jackpack on it. Okay. So it is impossible for, we'll just go with theft is the easiest. It's impossible for theft to be universally preferable behavior, right? Uh -huh. Now, there's no if about that. Right? L let me put it in another way. Is it possible for a gas to both expand and contract at the same time. So if you phrase when it heated. to not steal. No, 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 possible, hang on. Right? You're, you're going, no, you're going somewhere else again. Just stay with me for this part. It's really important. Is it possible for a gas to expand and contract at the same time when it's heated? No. No. Now, is there an if about that? But here we're talking about... Uh, no, 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 stay threats. with me. Stop, stop, stop breaking ranks. Just let yourself be led, and then I'll let you lead me afterwards. Just let yourself be led step by step, right? All right. I'm, I'm like the dance teacher, and I'm saying, step here, and you're trying to do handstands, all right, on a trampoline, on the wall. Okay. So it's not possible for a gas to both expand and contract at the same time when it's heated, right? Right. Okay. Is there an if about that? No. Okay. So that's exactly the same as UPB. 
but here we talk about uh, people, uh, behavior of people versus physical reality. No, 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 it's not behavior. It's the universality. Okay. Is it possible for two and two to make both four and five at the same time? No. Okay. Is there an if to do with that? No. Okay. So that's what I'm talking about is that it is logically impossible for theft to be universally preferable behavior. Now, forget about the murder preferable ethics. and That is logically impossible. It is a contradiction. It cannot ever happen in any universe, in any way, shape, or form. Okay, so it's like a square circle. Paraphrase it. Right? So you're saying if, um, like, for example, theft is not possible, right, as UPB, then there is no if here. But for things like scientific method, they are possible to be universalized. Then they have a if condition, right? It is not a logical contradiction to avoid the scientific method in the same way that to promote incompatible behaviors or opposite behaviors as universally preferable is. Okay, I think we right. So about you can you can so there's an there are two different categories of, of things, right? Yes, yes. Um, but let, let me let me let me, let me give you a, let, hang on a sec. Let me give right? you an analogy, and I appreciate your patience with this because this is a, this is where people get tripped up a lot, and I I get it, right? Let me put it to you this way. There's a difference if I say two bricks and two bricks make four bricks, right? And if I say, if you want to build this wall, you need 50 bricks. This wall will take you 50 bricks to build, right? So one of them is two and two make four, right? It's, there's no if involved. It's not like, well, if you want it to make five, it can make five or if you want to build a whatever, like it's not two, two and two make four, two bricks and two bricks make four. That's a self-contained reality, right? Now, the if is, well, if you want to build this wall, you need 50 bricks. So those two are not the same situations. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. Let me maybe approach it from a different side with aesthetically positive actions. When we talk about, for example, uh, be on time, right? Or be polite. Is there an if there? Like with, for example, I'm just trying to because uh, now, hang on, now, now we've we've. I'm not sure we finished the last part. Um, because it feels like I'm just trying to grab the soap, but it keeps jumping out. Now we're going off into aesthetics, right? But did we finish the last part? I think no, and uh, so okay. Then let's go back to the last part because okay. I want to keep moving. Even before we, we get to the proof, I'm just even talking about the very beginning when we just define UPB. Even before we get to the to the actual proof, I wanted to since there is preference there, right? I know that there is universality, but there is also we say that scientific method is universal, right? And you're saying that theft is not possible for two people if we want to look further ahead into proof. But for example, not stealing is universally possible. So when there's something that's universally possible, even if we go with this logic, is there an if for something that's universally possible just as not stealing or using the scientific method? Well, can can two people both be late at the same time? Yeah. All right. So it's a different category from theft, right? Two people cannot both steal from each other. Sorry, theft cannot be universally preferable behavior. Two people can both be late. 
at the same time? Actually, it's an interesting question. I'm not sure two people can be late at the same time. So the first person comes in first, and then at that moment, the other person is late, but this person cannot be late anymore. If we're talking about two people that are meeting together, right? No, that's if, if we're going to meet at 9 and we both show up at 9.15, we're both late, right? Well, I guess, yeah, if it's an agreed time. Right. Okay, but let, let's go back to the okay. bricks, mm -hmm. right? So, if you want to build a wall, you need 50 bricks. That's a conditional, right? Okay. But two bricks and two bricks make four bricks is not an if. It's not a conditional, right? Right. And that's the difference. So UPB is two bricks and two bricks make four bricks, not if you want to be moral or if you want to build this wall, you need 50 bricks. Okay. So to not murder is a consistent logical moral proposition, right? Universally preferable behavior. Oh, universally preferable behavior. Yeah, murder cannot be universally preferable behavior because it must be both wanted, it must be both the highest value and the opposite of the highest value at the same time. Right. It's like having a physics theory which says that a rock falls both down and upward at the same time. That right. simply can't happen. And so right? to not murder is UPB, right? Well, to be more precise, because not, not murdering is, I mean, technically that's true, but it's not a very helpful category. I would say that murder cannot be universally preferable behavior. And th this is the challenge, and this is, you know, where I need to work on the book and a, a little bit more, because the opposite of evil must be good, right? But what is the opposite of murder? Well, it's to not murder. But I don't think that we would say that somebody is necessarily the paragon of virtue because they've managed to go through a day without killing someone. So, and again, that's... That's a topic for another time, and it's not particularly... If, if we could just get rid of rape, assault, theft, and murder from the world, um, we'd have a paradise that we could barely even conceive of at the moment. So I'm happy to just keep working on that. There are more positive virtues uh, that I think are important. You know, courage, uh, integrity, uh, and um, uh, um, standing up for, for people who are being hurt or, or wronged, uh, standing firm against the evildoers, all, you know, all that kind of stuff. There are positive virtues. But they're not enforceable. Like you, you can shoot someone who's coming to strangle you. You can't shoot someone for lacking courage, right? I mean, so the, 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 the sort of the realm of positive virtues, I will get to in UPB 2.0, which is, you know, I've actually started making some notes for it and all that. But right now, for sure, we can definitely say that the four major bands that every moral system has at its heart, except for the rulers and the priests and gods, is, you know, thou shalt not kill, rape, assault, and murder. And those are perfectly validated by UPB. And there's no conditional in them. There's no if you want to be, then do do. Because, the, I mean, not only is that, would that not be good philosophy, but um, it would not be particularly convincing. I mean, I don't want to kill anyone. You don't want to kill anyone. And if we did, I don't know that a philosophical argument would stop us. <laughs> so it, it's the old thing. It's like, Ethics traditionally has been a diet book for people who are already at their perfect weight. So, Okay. All right. Um, so, for example, when we say that, and there was an example in a book, if you want to live, it is universally preferable to eat, for example. Yes. So we have a condition here, right? And so can we say that to eat... Sorry, sorry. Hang on, hang on, mm -hmm. hang on. 
But if you choose to starve yourself to death, that would not be in the realm of ethics because it would not be universally, uh, would not be imposed upon someone else violently and blah, 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 right? So this would be an example of a conditional statement which would be separate from the moral bans in UPB. Okay, so when we say that it's universally preferable to it here, we are not using universally preferable in the same sense um, as we use universally preferable about um, to not murder, for example, right? Right, because this one is, if you, wanna, if you want to build this wall, you need 50 bricks. Okay, and so we cannot have any positive actions as UPB, right, simply because they don't pass the comma test and we simply can't perform anything simultaneously at every single moment, right? Right. Okay, uh, then going back to the aesthetically positive, so we have seven categories, right? The first is good, universally preferable, enforceable through violence, right? And the second is aesthetically positive, also universally preferable, but not enforceable through violence, such as politeness and being on time. So when we say that the second category is aesthetically positive, it is universally preferable. Does it mean that uh, actions that fall or behavior that fall into this category should also be performed at every single moment? Or at least have a capacity to be performed? Well, no, no, they can't because if I don't have to meet anyone, I can't be late. So being on time can't be performed at every moment, right? Right. And so then my question is, why do we say that it's also universally preferable, but not enforceable? So if it's universally preferable, then it should be able to be performed at every single moment. No, I mean, it would be nice if people were on time in general, make the world much more efficient and so on. Right. But um, it's completely avoidable, which is sort of important. Right. Um, Something like some guy sticks a knife in your ribs and says, give me your wallet. It's not really avoidable because he's kind of got a knife in your ribs, right? Uh, On the other hand, if you have a friend who's perpetually late, you can just decide to not meet that friend anymore. It's completely, you're participating, you are, you know, creating that situation. And the avoidability has a lot to do with the ethics of the situation, which is an argument I go into more uh, in the book. But um, certainly I think we all prefer that if we're going to meet someone at nine o'clock, that they're there at nine o'clock. But uh, so it's, it, it's universally preferable behavior, but it is not something that can be enforced through coercion because it's not something that is the initiation of force. It's eminently avoidable. And um, there are, of course, circumstances that can occur outside of your control that can make you late. Right. Some big traffic accident or your car won't start or the bus is broken down or whatever it is. Right. And a terrible snowstorm. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I don't think that, that we would say that there's a, you know, a terrible accident that ended up with you raping someone, you know, (laughs) the bus was late. So I strangled a guy. Uh, So I think those would be, um, again, just off the top of my head, those would be some under some other differentials. Right. So why do we say then that this, this aesthetically positive actions are universally preferable, but at the same time, we don't require them to be performed at every single moment, like being on time or be polite. Right. But I just, just went through like three or four different reasons for that. So I, I don't want to do that again. (laughs) Sorry. But if we say that something should be, if something is universally preferable, right, we have in the definition requirement for this thing to be, people can prefer this thing at every single moment, right, in any place. So I would imagine well, that any but, action... But, that, no, but, the, but, but see, um, 
being on time can be UPB, but theft cannot. Because both people can be on time at the same time, right? So, so it can be universally preferable behavior, but doesn't mean that it's enforceable in the same way that self-defense is. And I've got an article on self-defense which goes into more detail about that. So you're saying there but is no requirement. two people can both be... I'm sorry, so, go ahead. Sorry, uh, you're saying that then there is no requirement for universally preferable to be uh, able to be performed at every single moment. Well, okay, so let's say that not stealing is UPB. Mm-hmm. Then, uh, of course, you're not stealing when you're sleeping, you're not stealing when you are uh, playing squash or whatever it is, right? So you can achieve right. the not stealing. Uh, that's universally. Now, it's nice if everyone is on time and that it's a sort of universal standard, but that doesn't mean that everyone is continually in a state of being on time. In other words, being on time is aesthetically preferable actions, right? Right. Right, because remember, there's UPB and there's APA, aesthetically preferable actions, right? Yeah. Being on time falls into the category of aesthetically preferable actions rather than universally preferable behavior. Right. Because it maybe can't I'm, be universalized. Sorry, right? uh, maybe I'm confused then because the book says um, the definitions are, the first one, it is good, it's universally preferable. The second is it aesthetically positive and also universally preferable. So the fact that both of them are universally preferable Maybe that thing. Look, I, I honestly, I have not read the book in five years or six years. So I do know that there's UPB, APA, neutral, and then the negatives of those. Okay. Um, so if I've got somewhere written in there that it's UPB, when I'm talking it about APA, uni- please send me the note and I will absolutely fix that in the next version. I apologize for that. It says universally preferable. And so I'm thinking that maybe we probably mean uni- by universally preferable in different places, different things. So in some cases, we mean that very first category that are good. In some places, we mean the universalizable actions. And in some places, is, for example, here, when it says it is aesthetically positive, which is universally preferable, but not enforceable, but not enforceable through violence. So I assume the universally preferable should not be here, right? Well, or it should be more clearly differentiated in that it is universally pre- preferable for everyone to be on time, but it cannot be that everybody is on time all the time, whether they're asleep or awake, no matter what their circumstances. So I should probably change some of that language, and I appreciate you bringing that to my attention. Yeah, and I was thinking maybe we need kind of also like in another condition here, for example, it's universally preferable to be on time when you meet someone or it's universally preferable to uh, eat when you're hungry because you also cannot eat at every single moment, but we say that it's universally preferable to eat if you want to live. But it's also an action. Yeah, and these, of course, these are all positive actions, right? Mm-hmm. Right, whereas universally preferable tends to be a ban rather than the espousing of positive actions, right? So being on time is a positive action. Man on a comet test can't be on time, can't be late, right? Can't be part of that. So I think that the fact that it's a positive action and it's in the category of aesthetically preferable actions um, or aesthetically positive, I thought it was preferable, but it could be positive. Um, I think that would sort of give an indication, but again, that's something that would be more clear in the language, um, which I'll work on in the next version. All right, got to move on to the next caller, but thank you very much. Great, great conversation. I really, really appreciate people's interest in UPB, and um, I uh, promise to make a uh, even clearer version. I think it's fairly clear, but absolutely could be improved, and I appreciate people's patience in hacking through it, and uh, let's move on to the next caller. All right, call. thanks, Steph. Thank you, man. Great, great call. All right, up next is John. John wrote in, 
and wanted to know, do you think there is a war on white people, white males in particular? You can have organizations for blacks, Jews, Hispanics, Mexicans, etc. But if anyone came up with a white organization or support group, then they are immediately labeled a racist. You also have affirmative action and the promotion of multiculturalism from the left. Is there a war on white people? And if so, why? Mm. Yeah, what is that? Uh, I want... I want and believe in self-determination for my people, said the black man. I want and believe in self-determination for my people, said the brown man. I want and believe in self-determination for my people, said the white racist. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah well, what do you think? I, um, I mean, I'm not talking about, when I talk about white people, I'm not talking about like George Bush or Bill Clinton, because there's not a war out for them. I'm talking about the average, everyday, around the folk, you know, white person. I think there is. I think it has to do with the either the I don't even know if it's a Zionist controlled media or the communist socialist left, but I think they want to break up the family. And I think there's something about white people. I mean, I see it every day in the news, you know, racism, racism. And like you said, you've been all over the I mean, I've traveled. I've never met a, a racist white person. I mean, I I literally have never met. I mean, it's like hunting for Godzilla or something. Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't, I don't see a lot of people focusing on the lack of multiculturalism in Japan or, Israel. or the lack of multiculturalism in Israel, for instance. <laughs> uh, and so, like, I don't see a lot of people saying, you know, well, the problem with Japan is, you know, they just, they need more Australian Aboriginals and Nordic people in order to mix things up a little bit. And I don't see a lot of people saying about Israel, you know, they need a lot of pygmies and Germans and, you know, to go in there and mix it up a little. So there is, there's a huge challenge with, uh, with immigration. And, you know, feel free to cover my ass while I go out on extremely thin ice here, because I know a lot of libertarians are very keen on immigration. And, hmm. you know, I am in many ways, too. I'd, I'd like for the entire category to be scrapped and just call it moving. It doesn't matter where people live or what they live. But but culture exists. We have to recognize and understand and accept the reality that culture exists. And it's not actually that hard to figure out what happens when cultures tend to collide. Right. So, I'm sorry, what was your name again? Uh, John. John. Okay, John, let's say you move to China, right? Now, the dominant ideology in China remains communism to, to a large degree, right? Yeah. Or if you go to Japan, it's what, Shinto religion or whatever. Anyway, so if you move to China, are you going to go uh, and become a communist and speak Chinese and lose your English and really blend in with the local population? No, I'd probably stick out like a sore thumb. <laughs> but I would, I, right. yeah. Right. I mean, all we have to do is think of going to the most exotic place we can think of. Would we abandon our existing culture and language and religion and ideal set or belief set or whatever? Would we be like we had been born there rather than born wherever our culture is in our origin? I think the answer is pretty clear that we would not. Now, the melting pot in America, which is the idea that uh, people come from around the world, but they adopt American values and separation of church and state and the republic and limited government. All They come and they absorb and, you know, it takes a while, but they, they, they do it. Maybe second generation or whatever, right? Yeah. That's sort of the idea behind the melting pot. 
And that works, but there's ways in which it doesn't work. And one of the main ways it doesn't work is that if people move to a country and there's a huge, what we would call an expat population, or there's a, mm -hmm. a huge area where millions of people who from, from the host country's culture all live there, all reproducing that culture, right? Yeah. Uh, have you ever been to a, a Chinatown in a city? I actually lived there in San Francisco. Oh, okay. So that's what's, that's about the biggest Chinatown in, in the States, right? Yeah. Now, it's really China <laughs> in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. I mean, seriously, they've got like uh, the market God knows what skinned animals out there. <laughs> Don't you have any place in the store for this food? Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, I've, I've taken some strolls down when I was in the business world. We did some business in, in San Fran. And, and uh, I mean, it's really different. The smells, the, the people, the language, the, the, the science. I mean, it's really Chinese, right? Mm -hmm. And then when people come over from China, they generally, not always, but in general, if they have a choice, they would like to go to Chinatown, right? Yep. That's why it's there. <laughs> That's why it exists, because they like to go to Chinatown. And, I, you know, I can't help but understand that. When I went over to do business uh, in China um, uh, in the year 2000, I spent a couple of weeks uh, in China. And who did I hang with? <laughs> well, the other people who were Western. <laughs> now, I didn't only do that. I also got my ass handed to me on a plate in ping pong battles that were epic, at least in their loss for me. But uh, and I went to have business meetings where people rubbed my feet under the table and got me all kind of goosed. But um, and I had, you know, business lunches, business dinners with people um, where I was, I think, continually referred to as the big nose foreign person. But anyway, um, but, you know, there was also a lot of socializing. And if it wasn't for business, I would have done some of the socializing with the locals. But I also would have if I I was just sort of picturing if I moved there where I would want to move to like little North America or whatever it is there, right? And it wouldn't be like I'd never have anything to do with the other culture or anything like that. But it's not natural and it's not particularly easy for people to just say, I'm now Chinese. I'm communist. I'm into this stuff. I'm into that. This is how I'm going to raise my kids. I'm not going to speak my language of origin. I'm not going to have anything to do with the belief systems I came from. I am now in the host country's belief system. Now, I think that can work and the way that it used to work in America was they used to, um, they'd have pauses between immigration, right? So from like 1920 to 1960, in the 1920s to the 1960s, there was very little immigration into America. And because of that, I mean, compared to what came later, because of that, there was much more um, blending, right? Much more uh, assimilation. In, into sort of the, the dominant culture. Now, since the 19... And, and I think in the... In, in the as late as 1963, 1964, like the vast majority of people in America were Christians who spoke English kind of thing, right? Now, that all changed in uh, the Civil Rights... Uh, sorry, not the Civil Rights, the Immigration Act, I think in 1965, I think it was, 1965, Ted Kennedy was a, a sponsor of it. And they just shifted, said, we don't want people from as much from uh, Western Europe anymore. We want people from the third world. We want people from India and all this kind of stuff. And of course, a lot uh, coming up from 
South America, Central America, particularly Mexico. Well, you let them in. They vote communist. They vote Democrat, obviously. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, the, the Democrats want I mean, this is why Obama has got this shadow immigration system going where like a couple of million people have been granted work visas, even though they're way outside the bounds of what's been authorized by Congress uh, because they just, you know, power hungry bastards who anyway. So. So with this, these constant waves of immigration, what happens is you get these um, Hispanic neighborhoods, you get um, I mean, a variety of different neighborhoods that, that grow up. And because this wave after wave of immigration coming in, there's not that assimilation factor that occurs. And so like Southwestern California has become pretty significantly Hispanic. And the Republican Party's basically had to, as far as I understand it, give up the entire state. It's not never going to vote for Republicans, right? So I don't know that there's a war on white people I think there is a very strong desire for the Democrats to have power. <laughs> and what's happened is that they've lost union power because unionization in America has declined considerably. They've lost the power of forced union dues, and so they've needed to find some sort of substitute. Uh, and they've not been willing to engage in the war of ideas. Like even after conservative has been slandered, repeatedly and, and, and it seems almost infinitely for the past 30 or 40 years, and certainly since uh, McCarthy, that conservatism has been so slender, but still twice the number of Americans identify as conservative as liberal. So they've really been unable to win the war of ideas. And so they're basically just using the war of moving human bodies now. I mean, it's, um, uh, it's not a very uh, uh, noble way to, to get your way, but you know, that's just the way it is. So I think that um, the war on the family, of course, as well. I mean, it's just another way to create a Democrat voting bloc. I mean, single moms, single women and single moms in particular overwhelmingly vote for the Democrats. So they have every incentive to split uh, families and they have every incentive to create conditions in which single motherhood flourishes. And um, so, yeah, this, this uh, attack upon the family and this um, relentless immigration that does not give time for assimilation is, um, it seems to me, it's just pretty much a massive political ploy on the part of the um, Democrats to bypass the need for a, a debate on the ideas. Uh, and it seems to me they've got more than a finger, but an elephant foot on the scale. And um, Mike, if you could just look up the way in which the demographics have changed uh, over the past 40 years, you know, just a tiny little project there. Uh, and you could read those off if you get a moment. So, yeah, I don't think it's a war against white people um, and white males. I mean, let's be let's be honest about it. It's mostly uh, it's yeah. mostly white males. Um, but I think it's just the necessary byproduct of what is uh, needed For the by the Democrats power. to gain yeah. and maintain political power. Do you, I'm sorry. Where, do, where does it, where do you think it comes from, though? Is it is it a communist movement? Is it a Zionist movement? Because I'm. I mean, it seems oh, very for sure. Up. Yeah, I think yeah, no, com communist for sure. So I mean, they've infiltrated yeah, I mean, somewhere, sometime. Yeah, communist for sure. I mean, okay. we've gone into this. Uh, we've got the truth about the race war. Yeah, I mean, I've seen all your videos. And the truth about immigration. Yeah, communist for sure. And this is that's not any kind of conspiracy theory. That's the outspoken aims and goals of the Communist Party, both in Russia and in the USA, to provoke as much minority resentment uh, and to um, use. Um, 
uh, minorities as a tool by which to destabilize a society and and um, drive a wedge through any kind of uh, unity uh, of Republican, oh, sorry, the Republic, not Republican, the party, but Republican idealism. And um, so that's definitely been the case. I mean, the degree to which Jews are associated with communism, you know, was quite a lot of the founders, of course, are the main major theoreticians and so on. But, uh, you know, they all lost to Stalin. And then there was a purge uh, against the Jews uh, in the Communist Party in the 30s. So, um, but the degree to which it's driven by Judaism is, you know, depends which time slice of history you're looking at, you'll find more or, or fewer. But um, communists, uh, again, they've been unable to win the war of ideas, and they certainly haven't been able to win the war of history. They've only been able to win the war of how many bodies can we pile up so that they reach halfway to the sun. Yeah, they don't. They don't um, seem to sleep or anything. I mean, like Hillary. I mean, Hillary Clinton. I mean, how old is she? Like, yeah, have all the money in the world, all the power in the world. Like, you think you'd like retire on an island somewhere, but they just keep coming back. I mean, they, these well, people, it's an addiction. No, these listen, people don't political sleep. power. It must yeah, political be, power is an addiction. I mean, uh, it, it must is, be the um, greatest power ever, or they're not human. It's one or the other. Yeah. Like David well, Icke, either David Icke's right. They're human, or they're, is what makes them so tricky. They're, they're cyborgs. Yeah. Cylons. But um, no, a political power is an addiction. I, I would not, you know, these people almost, they almost never exit from public life willingly because uh, it's, it's a high. And the amount of emptiness depression, nihilism, and I don't know, perhaps even suicidality that would be on the other side of them not receiving this kind of public attention uh, is, um, it would, would be horrifying, would be horrifying. You know, I mean, I, I'm willing to be a, like a minor public figure for the cause of philosophy, but I have no, um, you know, no, no particular desire to be a public figure other than the fact that it's kind of necessary to serve uh, philosophy. But I think these people just really, really love it. Um, it must be a high that we can't, maybe we don't know, you know, experience it yet. I mean, it must be that great because they, because they're 70, 80 years old. They, they don't stop. So it must, it no, must be. I, yeah, but I mean, not everyone likes this cigarettes, right? Some people try it and hate it. Uh, I, 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 I couldn't imagine, uh, political powers being anything other than repulsive. I'm sorry. Just uh, putting on a suit every day and lying, you know, lying to your to the this lying, reading off a script or whatever they're doing. I mean, it's it, yeah. I mean, they they're human, but they're intraspecies predators. I would assume. Yeah, psychopaths. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, the the, the changing demographics are are kind of important, right? I mean. Whites, eighty-five uh, percent of Americans in nineteen fifty, down to sixty-three percent in twenty eleven, projected to be forty-seven percent in twenty fifty. Hispanics, three and a half percent in nineteen fifty, seventeen percent twenty eleven, projected to be twenty-nine percent by twenty fifty. And Asians, point six percent nineteen fifty, five percent twenty eleven, projected to be nine percent in twenty fifty. And um, yeah, there's, um, I mean, there there are challenges. There are challenges um, when it comes to integrating people with a very different culture. And, um, and the other thing, too, is that like everybody knows that multiculturalism, I mentioned this on the show before, but everybody knows that multiculturalism means race. It's not about culture. But the multiracialism is what they're talking about. Because if I were to say, oh, on the board of Free Domain Radio, not that there's a board, but if the, on the board of Free Domain Radio, uh, we are very multicultural because we have a British guy, an Irish guy, a French guy, and a German guy. 
what would people say? But that's not multicultural at all, because you're all white. It's like, well, then let's not call it multicultural. Let's call it multiracial. And um, the degree to which races, particularly races combined with different cultures, mix well together remains an open question. Um, there's studies that show that uh, multiculturalism within neighborhoods causes significantly negative consequences. Uh, there are lots of uh, different arguments and uh, uh, problems with uh, multiculturalism. I don't have any particular answer other than we should all be philosophers and <laughs> forget all of that nonsense. And that's the best gift that I have to offer uh, this particular question. But um, I mean, I, I grew up in England where there were some significant cultural differences between us and the Irish. I mean, I would go on to Ireland in the summers, visit uh, my father's family and occasionally my father. But the rest of the time I'd be in England where I was continually warned that if there was a uh, an unattended bag or package in the bus shelter that I should get the hell out because it would likely be an IRA bomb. So, you know, there's some cultural challenges for you <laughs> that I grew up with right there. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, again, a war, a war on white people. I mean, I, th I think that we're just we're just stepped on on the way to power, so to speak. I don't think it's anything particularly personal. Yeah, I, th I think that the um, it's very it's very strange, though. You know how like when you mention like libertarianism or you know you're not have a government, they say, oh, move to Somalia. But when you bring up, when somebody brings up racism, they don't say, oh, you, you don't like it here? Move to Somalia. Right, right, they, right, right. It's, um, but it's, it's just a weird thing. Like lately, it's, it's been bugging me because I just see it in the news every day. Like this guy, Charles Blow is his name. Did you hear that thing about his son in Yale? He got yeah. a, he, a black cop pulled a gun on a black guy and he said it's racism. Like, what, like, what are you talking about? It just, it's just, they seem, they, they want to, they want to start some sort of war. And I think it's a very dangerous thing. They want to start like a black against white war. And it's just, uh, it, it's just stupid. It's very low level, primitive nonsense. Uh, it just, it just seems very, I don't even know how to explain it. It just seems very, it's just low level stup stupidity. That's what it is. It's, it's hunting for Bigfoot. There's no, there's no. Yeah. So, I mean. There has been a um, a focus on sort of the, the crimes of the whites or the crimes of the Europeans or whatever it is that's been going on for quite a long time. And look, I mean, to be fair, white people have done some seriously bad shit, mostly to other white people, tragically. I mean, this is the um, the, the First and Second World Wars, you know, carried off tens of millions of white people. And of course, other races and other cultures too. I'm not trying to, trying to magically dismiss that or anything like that. But I think that the near cultural suicide engaged upon by white Western Christians throughout the 20th century was something that I think broke the spirit of Western culture. You know, it's really hard when you're digging your way out of that many bodies to say, yay us, right? And I think that where that goes, I don't know. 
I, I think that where I'd like it to go is peaceful parenting and anarchism. <laughs> That's where I'd like it to go. That I think would be the best way to learn the lessons of the past. And, and of course, I've been reading this uh, audiobook by Lloyd DeMoss called The Origins of War and Child Abuse, which you can get at freedomainradio.com. Uh, that's where I'd like it to go. You know, it, it, going to appeasement and guilt and, and throwing money at minorities, which only cripples them, I mean, I think is not the, um, the right way to go. But, uh, you know, I think that it, it, it really broke the spine. If you look at how confident Western culture was in the 19th century, uh, or you could say, I mean, you say white culture, I don't know if that really helps in particular, because there's been lots of non-whites who've contributed magnificently to Western culture and so on. So, I, you know, I just talk about sort of Western European culture with all of its complexities and challenges. But, you know, sort of post-Renaissance Enlightenment, Industrial Revolution and um, Empire, the end of slavery, ending of slavery, more rights for women... Uh, and so on. I mean, there was a pretty magnificent run that Western European civilization had. And then the end of that run was running straight into the fucking meat grinder of the First World War. And then from there, staggering into the hyperinflation and stock boom of the 20s, followed by the 13-year Great Recession, culminating in the Second World War, culminating in the Cold War, and this century of potential, this century of progress, this century of optimism, this century of hope, this century of advancement, to end as it did in the endless democides and cultural suicides and slaughterhouses and of all of the, of the 20th century was, I mean, to me, is, is one of the most unbelievably tragic events and changes in all of world history all of world history it is brutal it's horrendous it had a lot to do with the government taking over education combined with the implementation of central banks i know that sounds all kinds of not important but it really is you can't you can't get willing soldiers unless the government controls the education which you can find more about in the truth about world war one and you can't fund these unbelievably interstellar carnage factories of world wars without fiat currency. And so these two socialistic, if not communistic, infections in Western Europe, government schools and fiat currency central banking, that was fucking it. I mean, that, that was it. That turned, that, turned that, that beat the plowshares into swords. And we've really been reeling from the effects of that ever since. Do, do you think that they, I mean, who's, who's they? I mean, that's what I'm trying to think of. It's obviously a leftist communist infiltration. I mean, it's blatantly obvious, but I don't know, you know where it comes from, but it's just, I don't like where it's going though. It's, it, it seems very, uh, very collectivist, very um, statist. It's just, it's just a weird thing. I can't even explain it. Well, the, the you know, as I've made this case before, the they is the, the no, it's it's the priestly class who transitioned to the intellectual class. You know, they saw that the ship of God was listing and going down, and they all jumped ship to go to 
the universities and politics and the state. And they, they took their considerable rhetorical skills, they detached them from their dying God, and they fastened them onto the jugular of the new world. And they, they continued their black wizardry of language parasitism and uh, were willing to drive people to war and, and willing to propagandize people to self-slaughter. Um, it, is, uh, it is the oldest enemy of mankind, I believe, is the sophists. The people who can make a worse argument appear the better by emotional manipulation rather than reason and evidence. And uh, we are the fucking ninjas of all time to take these people on. I forgive them in many ways for they, they know not what they do. They have simply adapted to use words. Uh, I gave this speech, they control you, or they control humans with language. Oh, that was a great we video. About how spells, that's exactly what it is. I mean, that's what they write about in the old... You know, the Old Testament and the old old folklore books, that's what it was. That's what a spell is. It's just language. But the best comment is that, which I didn't even think of at the time, someone posted on YouTube, you spell a word. I mean, it's even right there that's in the language. Jordan Maxwell goes into that, yeah. And this emotionally manipulative language that bred itself in the bosoms of dark deities throughout most of human history found it fairly easy to transition from the cross to the flag and from the church spire to the ivory tower. It's a very nimble transition. And the option of working for a living in the free market is anathema. This is not what they're adapted for. It's like asking a fish to live at a treetop or a giraffe to feed on sperm whales. This is not what they're adapted to. And I think that fortunately the internet has given us the capacity to bring words and, and powerful counter, the powerful counter spells, counter magic of reason and evidence. We've been able to, you know, we get a hundred million plus downloads of this show, lots of other people working to bring clarity to the world. But um, it's the human farmers and the human farmers are not those who use we weapons, but those who use words. It's that great line from a, uh, an old in excess song, Words of weapons, sharpen the knives, makes you wonder how the other half dies. And, um, yeah, that the only power in the world is words. Everything else is merely the shadow of power. And um, that, I think, is, is where it comes from. Those who have adapted to create the farmer's fences of language in the minds of those who become livestock by believing imaginary language. Like patriotism and country, religion. I mean, how do you think this thing plays out in the end? I mean, obviously, uh, it can go either way, but... It doesn't play out. If I thought it played out, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. It goes where the people with the most will and resolution want it to go. That's where the world goes. The world goes where those who plant the deepest fucking stake in the heart of the world are willing to stand there in the face of all storms and opposition and say, we will not move unless budged by reason and evidence. That is where the world goes. The world goes where those who are willing to stop it, hold still, and swing it around in its orbit, though it dwarfs their very mind. That is where the world is going to go. The world goes where the will takes it. The world goes where you want it to go.
That is where the world goes and no other place. And if they want it more than we want it, they win. And if we want it more than they want it, we win. Because all they have is language. All they have is slander. All they have is negativity. All they have is hostility. All they have is the little whispered lies of ugliness. And we have the giant airstrike sunlight of reason, clarity, evidence, and truth. So how it plays out, what a passive thing to say. Don't mean to bitch on you, but it's a passive thing to say. It's not a train going down a hill. Like it either stays on the tracks or it jumps. No. The world has these giant levers called language, and it will fly delicately like a dragonfly, like a helicopter, like uh, a jetpack. It will fly delicately where you move the levers of language to go. That's where it goes. That's where we can fly it. The future is wherever the fuck we want to land the planet. And yeah, we're fighting like sons of bitches for control over the joystick over the flight sticks, over the rudders. We are fighting like crazy. Elbow, elbow, give me that stick. Give me that, oh, I want that stick. I want to land it in hell. We want to land it in heaven. And if we don't do anything, yeah, we're the passengers in a Taiwanese plane that goes into a bridge. We just, we, we just ah, passengers, I'm going to see where this thing goes. Well, it's going to go badly. Get to the cockpit, wrestle for the stick. Hi, NSA, right? But that is where... We have to have our mindset. The passivity of how does this play out? What's going to happen to the world? What's the end game? No. Get in the goddamn pilot seat and go for the joystick. It's going to go where you want it to go. And it will only go where the bad people want it to go if we step back and step out. <coughs> That's true. I think we, I mean, we obviously have the numbers I just got to get over that propaganda. Numbers? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if we have the numbers. Oh, the numbers of people, have, not the money. I we mean, have they, the facts. No, I don't. Fuck the numbers. No, no, fuck the numbers. Because with the numbers, when you focus on the numbers, my friend, what ends up happening is you say, I will take a stand when there's enough of us. Right, right, no, right, right. right. You take a stand and you bring the people to you. By having the stand. That's true. Right? Because now, if there are real bullets, you don't do that. <laughs> right? You, you don't do that if there are real bullets. But where the war is merely language, where the more war is merely words, then hell yeah, you stand because nothing can hit you but syllables. Sticks and stones, brother. Sticks and stones. You stand and you keep trying your barbaric yawp of truth to the very roof of the world. And sooner or later, people look up and say, I don't think that's lightning up there. I think that's human thought changing physics, changing what I thought was physics, unraveling the matrix, changing the very nature of reality as I have perceived it and as my tribe has perceived it low these many thousands of years. There is someone up there who is undoing history, who is taking a giant Thor hammer of thought cracking it down on the mountaintop, altering the physics of what we call society. And some people are like, oh, I'm going to the basement. I think I'm just going to hide till this is over. I'm going to see who wins. Shameful. I don't mean you. <laughs> shameful, shameful stuff. And there are other people who are like, I'm going to grab whatever I can. I'm going to get up there. I'm going to make some fucking lightning. 
I am going to go up there and I'm going to alter some fucking physics. Because this tilting world that keeps dragging us down and down and down into the fires of history, into the fucking repetitions of history, but with better weapons and more technology, evil, networked, evil, bit-enabled, evil with TCPIP, evil with nuclear weapons. Look at that. The free market has given us so much technology, we've armed evil to the teeth. What a great, great job that's been. Yay! No, no, no. No, 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 no. No! Enough. We go up there and we fucking change history. We take this, whether it's Atlas Shrugged or whatever you want to call it, we take this, we put our fucking shoulders to that tilting slope that's pushing us into hell itself, and we push the fuck back. We push the fuck back. We get our shoulders under it, and we lift that seeming inevitable tilt of the world back. And whoever slides off the other end, I couldn't give a shit. But we tilt this son of a bitch back. We get up there to the mountaintop. We take out the biggest hammer we can. And we strike fire from the feet of the very gods of history. We make them dance to our tune for once. Fuck this inevitability. Doesn't have to be that way. But it will be. If all we do is hide. Exactly. That's some badass shit right there. Thank you for your call, my brother. Yep. Take care. That was awesome. Thanks. All right. Up next is Trip. Trip wrote in and said, what would narrative stories look like in a free and peaceful society, especially for teens and adults? Would healthy relationships lead to an increased quality of certain narratives that depict win-win paradigms, while overall television slash film slash book slash video game fiction would die off? What do you think? Oh, um, but I don't know. What do you think? Uh, uh, hey, Stefan, uh, before I answer your question, uh, big fan and wow, I actually can't believe this is happening right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. So, um, so like I was thinking about this last night, like, a, well, I mean, more than that, but especially last night. And what I thought was like, there'd be, there would definitely be certain genres that would, Die for the most part. I mean, you know, we have no idea what's going to happen, but like a most likely, we won't see a lot of uh, patriotic films, or we won't see a lot of um, act, like we, we uh, like action films won't be as numerous as they are now. Like with the whole um, like like a like the die hard, like die hard or uh, let me take a deep breath for a second. Uh, okay. Yeah, so we won't like um, one thing is like we wouldn't see like a lot of action films because uh, just the, like a uh, just the aspect of uh, like a uh, just because like the pro of uh, the pro state pro like a uh, spy like my country versus that country wouldn't quite exist. We wouldn't have like a lot of rom coms due to the fact that we would have a better understanding ideally of uh, relations between people, and a lot of the rom coms follow the same you know pattern of this girl needs to find some guy and all of a sudden she happens to find the right guy, but then something bad happens and they have to resolve it at the end. Uh, and we really wouldn't see like a lot of uh, what a, I think it was like during the first uh, caller in a uh, lot of what I call like, like freak show, like freak show narratives, like fear factor <laughs> or like uh, the show you're thinking of was naked and afraid. 
where they like drop in the uh, two people who are naked <laughs> uh, in like you know like Vietnam or like somewhere in a jungle that no human can survive in. And like uh, I, and like also, I feel like a lot of comedies actually would like dive because the uh, comedy for a good for like a good deal of time. Uh, for like uh, most part, it's like tragedy plus time, and ideally there wouldn't be quite that much tra- like tragedy. Like we wouldn't see something like South Park or The Hangover emerging in a uh, free uh, in a free society. Or those are the ones that came to mind. But I'm thinking like um, like very bad th- like very bad things with uh, I'm forgetting the guy's name off the top of my head. Um, it has like Cameron Diaz in it, and it's the uh, the they go to Vegas for a honeymoon, but not a honeymoon for a uh, Oh, um, <clears throat> Dennis Miller's the judge, and the guy from that set, Ashton Kutcher, is in it, right? That might be a di- that might be a different one. I'm thinking it's um, I literally uh, whatever. Like an example of something we wouldn't see though is uh, do you know the uh, the Bobcat Goldway film uh, God Bless America? I don't. All right, so um, it's the it's this film that it came out with in like 2011 where. Um, this guy has a brain tumor, and in order to uh, solve all the problems in America, he goes on this rampage with this uh, outcast girl and just kills out, uh, kills people like the uh, uh, like the West Baptist Church and like uh, the judges of uh, America's Got Talent and that sort of thing. Uh, because like they, wow, yeah, like we probably wouldn't see stuff like that, but I would imagine that there would be stuff like we would see like musicals and like historical pieces especially those where uh where like uh they might follow the lives of people who actually first uh, stood up to stay like who like have been standing up to statism and uh i can imagine like sci-fi again like some other types of co- uh, comedies like i can imagine life of brian being popular or something like that and uh like overall i do think that uh art like um narratives might while they you know would be relatively plentiful Ideally, like, uh, I think during the second call with Dan, uh, Mike brought up the statistic, uh, teens watch about like seven hours uh, or like a seven hours a day on like, uh, with media. I feel like they wouldn't be as, uh, because, uh, people wouldn't be spending that much time and ideally uh, with more people and face to face with like parents and, uh, friends, there probably wouldn't be as much media because there wouldn't be as much of a demand. Those are my thoughts. Hmm. And oh my God, that was uh, jumbled up. I would love to hear. No, no, it wasn't jumbled at all. It was uh, very interesting. I appreciate your thoughts. Uh, not jumbled at all. And um, there, there would still be historical movies about the horrors that society had escaped, right? I mean, you can still, of course, there's movies about slavery in in the America. And um, there was movies about the Civil Rights Act and so on. And, and so there would be these... Um, Spartacus movies. So there'd be historical movies where they would still have access to the drama of how things used to be. And there could, of course, still be dangerous space alien movies, right? Where a virtuous planet defends itself against uh, space aliens. Uh, that could, of course, uh, still occur. There is, of course, you know, we, we are going to march onto the future with the brainstem from the distant past. And so there will always be challenges in terms of self-knowledge and growth in the human psyche and the, in the human mind. So I think that, um, that there's no perfection within the species. You're, you're never in perfect health, right? I mean, there, there is no perfection in the species. So the continual improvement is something that will always 
go on. Um, so and Michael Jordan, right, uh, a basketball player, of course, uh, you know, continued to practice, though he was considered pretty much the best in his field, continued to practice four or five hours a day. It's like, well, I can always get better, always get better. And uh, so even if he's top of the game, he still practices. Uh, a Canadian hockey player named Wayne Gretzky was considered at some points in his career to be the very best athlete in the world because he was so much further ahead from number two. He was the furthest ahead from number two statistically and proportionately than anyone else in sports was ahead from their number two. And he continued to practice many, many hours a day, even though he was considered the very best athlete in the, in the, in the history of uh, of athletics, at least in modern athletics. So, so I think that there will always be this desire to improve and that the, the standards and measurements would, would change to some degree. Uh, and uh, I think that there would be more internal dialogue. I think that uh, uh, novels might be more, I mean, movies are kind of action-based and it's very hard to have an inner dialogue or inner moment in a movie, and so I would imagine that um, there will be, or there would be, more interior dialogue kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, there'd still be space shooters, I guess. You know, we'll always enjoy, I think, um, uh, some simulated combat. Again, because we've got the monkey brainstem from ages past, uh, all the way back to single-celled organisms. So we'll never transcend that. There will be no nirvana of non-humanity in the future, because we're always going to be building on the basis of our biological nature. So I, I think that will still be stuff. And of course, we will, there will still need to be um, alertness towards the potential resurgence of uh, evil in the world, which I would consider highly unlikely, given that people would be raised better in a free society. We can't have a free society until they're raised better. And uh, there wouldn't be, yeah, I think there wouldn't be things like Honey Boo Boo, Jerry Springer, and... As Mike says, he shows which glorify and mock uh, dysfunction. I think there would be uh, a lot less of that uh, in the future, if any. Um, but um, I think art would still be a challenge. And the challenge would be if you want to coach, you know, coaching humanity at the moment is, you know, because humanity is still pretty primitive. It's not that complicated in some ways. But if you want to be Michael Jordan's coach, you better be the best damn coach around. So I think that the very best artists will need to have the very best self-knowledge to help human beings improve whatever they're working on in the future. So um, I think it would be more challenging to be an artist. It won't just be car chase. You know, I'm not saying it's that simple, but otherwise everyone who made a car chase movie would make a fortune and the new Wachowski Brothers movies would be as good as The Matrix, which apparently it's a wee bit shy on. So, yeah, I think there would still be lots of challenges to, to continue to work on. And, of course, um, you know, once we get a free society, we'll get interplanetary and interstellar travel relatively quickly. And then there'll be all of the excitement of working with other races, other cultures or whatever is out there in the universe. I don't think there's going to be much that we'll have in common uh, with other species uh, because the idea that we end up at the same level of development in a 15 billion year old universe or 20 billion year old universe or whatever it is would be pretty un unusual. Um, so they'll either be, you know, a billion years ahead or behind, which would make them not particularly interesting to, to us or them in either case. But um, there will be all of that stuff uh, to do and all of those challenges of new environments. So I think there'll still be cool art in the future, but it will be uh, hopefully more subtle and more refined. Right. Like, uh, and like, I was sort of thinking stuff like that, like, uh, a lot like um, I, I've done I've done reading, but like uh, a lot of my uh, of my exposure has been mostly movies and uh, 
video games. And uh, yes, I probably do. Well, actually, I do have ADD, and I'm sure that's just coincidental and has nothing to do with the uh, exposure for hours since uh, 1998 when I got my first Pokemon game. But, um, but like, uh, I, I guess like where I'm coming from though is that uh, ever since like a, I'm a senior in a college, and like ever since my junior year of high school, I've been like um, I've been noticing like a lot of the media, like a lot of uh, films, and like to an ex- uh, extent like modern literature seems to be like the same sort of thing, uh, well the same like subgenres and like nothing really. Like there's very like very like little uh, or rare new things to come out. Like I mean, how many times have they redone Dracula? And like they came out with that Dracula film over the summer, right? And uh, yeah, but I mean, the alternative is to actually teach people about the dangers of sociopaths in their lives. Rather, they'd rather fictionalize it and make it abstract so people don't notice the sociopaths in their lives. Dracula movies um, and and um, vampire movies are great camouflage for the dangerous people in your life. But anyway, go ahead. Well, and like, uh, and like, uh, I've been like uh, trying to come up with like a, uh, like uh, ideas for writing. I write on the uh, write on the side whenever I don't have to worry about my uh, history papers or my psych papers. And um, yeah, yeah, a lot. Of, I chose uh, two really uh, writing intensive uh, fields of study, but whatever. Um, and like a like a problem I've come across though is like uh, trying to get like a uh, get in touch with human nature. I've um fdr really has helped uh, oh what am i saying you uh, uh, you've really helped with this but like uh every time like i write like a story i have like a get up to a certain point and i realize that i don't actually know the motivation of these characters and like uh having like go back and like re like reevaluate uh, reevaluate that which i guess like a uh, what i'm trying to ask is uh like, is there really, like, I guess, like, is there like a difference with like getting in touch with like a empathy for a char- for characters they are uh, uh, creating versus uh, like the empathy that you would uh, have with uh, talking to someone else, uh, considering that you're the author here? <laughs> yeah, I mean, having empathy for characters in movies requires that they first have personalities, and most characters uh, in in movies and and to a large degree in novels as well most characters in movies and novels uh, are are they're not people they're not people that you would recognize as individuals they're like templates uh, they are um you know mean drug dealer uh a snarky heroic han solo type you know like the guardians of the galaxy uh, type uh, cool guy uh hot chick who is uh Got an icy heart. You know, they, they, these, these stock characters, they're like, uh, they used to be a phrase like, oh, this guy's right out of central casting. And, and what that used to mean is, um, you know, I, uh, I need a kindly old man. And you'd go to central casting, which was like where they had the uh, yeah, bumbling husband, dumb dad. Uh, says Mike. And, and you, you'd go, I need, a, I need a kindly looking old man. Okay, let's get Peter Fork. And uh, he'll be the guy who reads to the grandchild in uh, A Princess Bride or whatever. And those characters don't um, d- don't evoke a- empathy because they're they're not real people. They're cardboard. They're they have no depth, no complexity, no personality. I mean, you go to something like a Streetcar Named Desire, and there you have real personality. Or you look at the 
the husband and wife at the beginning of Great Expectations, Joe, and I can't remember the woman's name, and there's real, real characters, real, uh, real personalities. And um, that is usually where, where you'll see is, is whether the person has inner conflicts, uh, whether the person or, or they're just, they do what they do and they just, they wise, they make quips or wisecracks or whatever. They just kind of do what they do. And they're like rocks rolling down a hill. That's not how people are. You know, people struggle. They're afraid. They have uh, eagerness. They have they, some movie with Paul Newman where he plays a lawyer where he's very afraid to do something. Or if you look at Tom Cruise in A Few Good Men, when he's confronting Jack Nicholson's character, he's terrified to do it. There's someone who has a, a, a conflict uh, and uh, requires courage to overcome. Whereas, you know, the sort of wisecracking Han Solo type types, uh, they're just, you know, they're boring because they don't really have any particular conflicts, you know, like, well, I'm just going to go fight the war. You know, the Luke Skywalker, I just go, I find the war, I fight the war. <laughs> I just what I go to chop off the hairy ape's arm and go fight the war. And then just blah, off they go. And there's no uh, particular conflict. If you look at a movie like The Fight Club, well, there's a character who's got significant <laughs> amounts of conflict that you find out in more detail about at the very, uh, at the very end. And uh, life, to, to be realistic, people, and I've tried to work with this in my own novels as well, but, but you, you try to, there's a forward motion, the desire and a resistance. There's a desire and a resistance. And that's the tension of life. You know, I want to help the world with philosophy. Don't really like being a public figure. Right? So there's a desire and the resistance. And what happens is this is a personality in a movie in general it's all of the inner parts of a, a single human personality are all extrapolated and blown all over the screen. Oh, yeah. So then, you know, Luke Skywalker has a desire and Darth Vader ha is the resistance. But Luke Skywalker himself has no resistance, right? And, and there's no good in <laughs> Darth Vader. And, and so... You, you put all these people in the same head and then you've got an interesting character. But when you split them all out and they become these sort of one-dimensional forces of gravity and repulsion and, and magnetism and, and so on, it's like, you know, put all these people in the same head because they all come out of the same head, right? They all, I mean, they all come out of George Lucas's imagination. I think he was the writer, right? Right, uh, George Lucas and is the guy that died in the middle of the first... I think, uh, actually, uh, I'm sorry for the tangent. Like, I, I think actually... Um, George Lucas wanted to go a completely different way in the in the first movie, and uh, the guy he uh, co-directed the movie with, who had uh, died just before it was released, uh, told him like, "No, don't make uh, Han Solo a scummy, uh, a scummy like alien who tries to sell people used cars. Make him a uh, bounty hunter, or make him a smuggler instead, and something like that." But I digress. Right, and uh, there's not this complexity of uh, of characterization. Um, Stanley Kowalski in A Streetcar Named Desire is by turns funny, aggressive, uh, seductive, uh, 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 babyish, uh, and uh, vulnerable, and uh, all of that. Uh, and and this, is a, this is a relatively simple-minded but not simplistic character. Uh, of course, the ultimate is, is, is Hamlet with his uh, to be or not to be and his continual dialogues of um, which way to go, as I've argued before, a renaissance or enlightenment mind trapped in a medieval um environment uh, and um modernity clashing with uh, primitivism 
And uh, there is a real splitting that goes on, I think, in the writers of a lot of modern movies. And it appeals to people who are split themselves. People often find it quite uncomfortable to see a hero who's terrified. Right. Right. Especially if they don't know if he's going to end up doing the heroic thing or not. Like if it's just a standard, oh, his hands are shaking, but he's going to go off and do it anyway. Uh, then, but, but people don't like to, to see that. And um, they don't like to see a villain who mourns the loss of his soul, so to speak. Uh, they don't like to see that. They just, he's just this wind up automatic robot villain. And there's a wind up automatic robot hero. And it's just nothing in particular. That, uh, you know, in, in the same way that you see this cliche these days, which is that, um, you know, the kids are smart and the parents are clueless. That's that's the trope uh, oh. these days. Oh, I I mean, like, a, I'm closer to like a, I'm closer to like that age. And oh, my God, I just I never even liked it then. It was always the thing where I mean, obviously, the parents would probably know a little bit more than the kids about how what the adult world is or something like that. But it makes Disney a lot of money. <laughs> oh yeah it's i mean it's not just disney i think it's it's all over you know you you've got the shock-haired uh, kid who's cool and comfortable and collected and and never has any pimples and you know like never has any self-doubt and you know never is trying to deal with strange body odors from his growing body or you know, no awkwardness and no you know and it's just this cliche and there is of course also the cliche that uh physicality is destiny Right. So if you got like freaks and geeks, right? So the, 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 the pretty boy is the cool guy and the nerdy looking kids are the nerdy looking people like body is destiny. And that to me is such a terrible cliche and it's so limiting to people. And this is all over the place in youth movies that body is destiny, uh, looks is personality and you, you cannot go counter to your looks. It's something that Robin Williams said when he was making Jumanji, he said, uh, Hey, this is the only chance I'm going to get to play an action hero because he doesn't look like Brendan Fraser, right? Doesn't have that that look. And so there's so much that is done in shorthand. You know, like uh, you've got to look like Harrison Ford to be the hero. And if you look like the guy who played the melting-faced uh, Nazi, then you're the melting-faced Nazi. <laughs> there's just no two ways about it. Uh, you you can't, can't switch those roles. Especially afterwards. I always love it when I see people who, whose physicality is not their personality. Like I, I, I met a, a, a young man the other day, looked totally nerdy, confident as all get up, a real delight to chat with, does judo or whatever it was. And interesting, you know, like this great. And I thought that was really, uh, really cool. And when you see that uh, physicality is not destiny uh, is not personality that's great i mean that's just fantastic um i'd love to see ned Beatty <laughs> cast as superman instead of christopher reeve or who i'm dating myself and all that but uh, i think that, that casting against type is is much more challenging and wakes people up uh, a lot more you know you know it's like the old cliche of well she wears glasses so she's totally plain but then the moment she takes off her glasses and her hair cascades, suddenly she's hot. And it's like, oh, my God, how embarrassing, how ridiculous, how foolish and how inevitable and how playing to the lowest common denominator that is um, and, uh, and easy, which is why media harms people's capacity to interact with others, because you spend most of your time 
with cliches. And then when you actually come across a real human being, I don't mean you, but when one comes across a real human being, when you've spent your whole time dealing with cliches, it's sort of like uh, trying to get into a conversation with someone when all you've been listening to is audio tapes of sentence fragments in another language. And then you go and try and speak to someone in the other language. You have no clue what's going on. So, cause all fragmented and broken up and not real people there. You know, humanity. There is no substitute. Well, apparently I've been going about learning French the wrong way. Um, but, um, well, it's fine to learn, but it just doesn't make you conversational, right? Right. I, I meant the more as a, never mind. <laughs> but, um, I was, yeah, whatever. But, um, yeah, like, um, like the one thing I'm wor- uh, working with is, uh, I've had like a, like these different character personalities and like, it's not like necessarily the personalities that I'm in trouble with because I have like a, like, like, a, the, like, um, the protagonist of uh, my of a uh, one one of the books I'm working on, uh, or uh, the protagonist of I guess the main series I'm trying to work on is like a this guy who's about uh, is like a fifty fifties archaeologist, and then uh, somehow like you know, like a Freaky Friday sort of thing, except goes back goes back in time goes back in time to like a medieval society, and like part like part of it's just like not being comfortable as like the young. Oh, someone just logged. Oh, okay, but, but not being like a uh, comfortable being like the young, uh, like a young handsome guy because like that's not what he looked like. Like and like you know, the pros and cons of that, but like going on this going on this quest and like not really taking seriously the fact that oh dragons are there when you know there's no dragons and that sort of thing. And like it's it just like I, I guess like what's a uh, game to me? It's like I like every time I write like a a, pl- a plot, like the characters are interesting, but like. Sometimes, like, uh, I, like I'm trying to, I want to try to do something new and not do it for new sake, because you know that that's not the kind of worms. But uh, I'm guessing, like, I try, like, I try not to like rely on the, at least, uh, especially more recently, like, rely on like uh, violence being the thing that solves the problem at the end of the day, or like relying on some sort of uh, overly used, overly used uh, trope, like. Uh, mm. I'm trying to think for uh, like, for, um, for example, there's a um, the uh, uh, there, there's a uh, one um, one of the characters uh, uh, one like the supporting characters I'm working on is this uh, t- like a time traveler uh, like time traveler like a it's, it's sort of like from the outside she looks like what feminists try to say every woman should be like but on the inside she has like this she like uh, comes from like this really really dysfunctional and like a messed up place and like how that like affects like decision making like well, her decision making like she's the um like, like she comes from a um a near like a near but like technologically advanced future but still society isn't quite as peaceful as uh it could be and she comes from a, uh, I mean, like, uh, this might get like a little dark, but like, uh, she got like, a like her mother, get, uh, like, uh, got pregnant from one night stand in college. Then, uh, she comes from uh, a traditional family that, uh, uh, a family that like, uh, doesn't want to handle it. So they try to get her to have an abortion. She does, but it fails. She gives birth, uh, kills the mother. Then uh, the family doesn't want anything to do with it, so they're going to put up with for adoption or something like that. The uh, 
black sheep of the family uh who's the who's the sister of the uh of the deceased mother uh decides to adopt the baby and she and her uh, partner uh, like a female partner adopt the uh, adopter but the uh female partner is a bit like um, is abusive and all this kind of stuff and obviously that you know, like creates a fucked up person but it's sort of like a what like what like um like the what I had the idea with like in the, uh, that character in mind is like a what would it be like if you had like someone who is like the uh, you know, the future person who goes back in past past and obviously knows better than everyone else and like you know get, like um has like the Deus Ex Machina machine and that sort of thing but what if like that person joins a group and then slowly transforms away from like the good guys uh, good guys and just join tries to get the highest position of power if not rule. And like that sort of thing, um, right? And uh, I know I'm, uh, these are the specifics of generalities, but it, it's just a case where um, uh, I have these char- like uh, I have these characters in mind, and uh, the idea is to like uh, try to like uh, relay some sort of me- like uh, relay messages that quite aren't in uh, our culture right now. That like uh, ideally would uh, ideally would you know help and propel us forward, but I guess like uh, my big thing I'm struggling with is like, you know, there's so much violence in movies I mean, and video, uh, video games. I mean, I, I think maybe three video, uh, video games I own don't rely like, um, or like a, I've, excuse me, I grew up with like a, don't rely on like some sort of violence or to like a resolve an issue, uh, uh, resolve an issue. Well, and with the violence comes the one-dimensional characters, right? Right. So, I mean, there's this cliche in in video games, which is, you know, I mean, the, the old stories was the maiden that you had to go and rescue, right? Right. And, you know, the dragon would carry her off in its claws and, yeah, you know, Fei Ray on King Kong's arm. And, and then... This, you know, we're going to turn that on its head and Carrie Ann Moss is going to kick chandeliers down on your head from the ceiling and stuff like that. Right. And it became now there's this cliche that, you know, all women in video games have to be relentlessly tough. And and have no there's no conflict about it. You know, like I'd be fascinated in a video game if one of these tough chicks you came across her crying because she thought, I don't know, maybe I'm not attractive to, to men because I'm too aggressive. Not that that would be right or wrong, but I'm sure that's what some people think. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's just become, you know, it's like we just stagger like pendulums or pinball silver balls from one cliche to another. It's like the cliche of the helpless woman is now the cliche of the punk tough woman who is, is competent at everything and never uh, has any doubts and, and, uh, all that and it's just it's become it, it's you know we're trying to become multi-dimensional by bouncing from one extreme to the other and um that i think is a is a real shame you know we all have these complexities within us we all want acceptance and we all want to do the right thing and we all challenged uh, and we all are you know certainly if those of us in this kind of conversation we all are in situations where we want to say or do the right thing and there's social pressure to not. And, and sometimes we make it and sometimes we don't. And uh, it's, you know, in the dragging forward of the human condition, uh, it's, um, it's never a steady path, right? I mean, 
Lara Croft is not worrying about her eggs dying on the vine. You know, when am I going to have kids or anything like that? It's um, it just does. There's just none of none of that kind of stuff. And uh, you know the the you know Blazowski or whatever his name is in in the uh, Wolfenstein series. He's he's just a tough guy. That's what he does. He's just tough. <laughs> you know, there's never any particular you know. I don't even know if I'm doing the right thing. Why am I even fighting this battle? What's going to be there is I've never heard of it, but um, Duke Nukem and all. I mean, it's uh, unfortunately, it's just one dimensional. And that tells you that the people who are creating these things are kind of um, one dimensional as well in their understanding of how their various parts work together. The various parts of their personalities work together and oppose together. What I call the ecosystem um, is uh, that we are all um we have aspects of ourselves, imprints of others, and it's all an ecosystem of personality structures that we attempt to work with. And um, that, I think, is is called full personhood. But these are all split off. And everyone takes their little pieces of personality and put them in these black and white roles in these movies that, even when assembled, would resemble a very split human personality. Uh, but when separated in a movie, uh, render it reliant upon special effects and um, car chases and violence and sex in order to stimulate you because there's not the stimulation that comes from connection and intimacy. There is only the stimulation that comes from the sense data and the, the stimulation that comes from um, fear and, and danger and, and lust and all of this uh, kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, this is, this is the challenge. Uh, you know, I, um, I tried to, in, in my novels to create more complex uh, characters uh, and you know as a novelist i ended up uh, doing a podcast on philosophy so <laughs> you can see where that went all right listen man it's a great call i really appreciate uh, this uh, i certainly love the artistic topics and i think that we could do a lot more work in the realm of art uh, as a community but um, it certainly sounds interesting what you're working on i hope you'll keep keep writing away and uh, bring the world what you've got it certainly is a lot easier to get books out into the public sphere now than it was when I was younger. So uh, thanks very much for your call. Thank you very much, of course, for you, the listeners. Please, 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 as I must, for the sake of the show and uh, my continued sustenance, um, remind you to go to freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out. We really need you. And uh, there's really nothing we can't do if we all put our backs to the wheels, but the wheel is not going to turn itself. So freedomainradio.com slash donate. Thank you. So much. Have yourself a wonderful, wonderful night. We'll talk to you soon.